Hi, listeners. This is the 80,000 Hours Podcast, where each week we have an unusually in-depth conversation about one of the world's most pressing problems and how you can use your career to solve it. I'm Rob Wiblin, Director of Research at 80,000 Hours. Today's guest is out to explain why the internet is changing who wields power in society and how that's creating big shifts in our politics. At the end, this time around, we've added a discussion of the episode and its implications, featuring me, my producer Kieran Harris, and one of 80,000 Hours' career advisors, Michelle Hutchinson. It's a bit of an experiment, and uh, one we might continue if it seems useful and people like it. As always, you should never finish listening to an episode that you've started if you're not actually finding it entertaining or useful. Just turn it off and listen to something better rather than get dissatisfied and unsubscribe. And obviously that also goes for our conversation at the end of the show. In my view, that's uh, also how you should approach all books, movies, TV shows, newspaper articles, and so on. Or at least that's, that's how I do it. The opportunity cost of listening to one thing is not listening to another one. And having started something, as far as I can tell, gives me no particular reason to finish it. So, so completionism does not make a lot of sense to me. If you do enjoy this conversation, though, you should definitely look out for my interview with economist Glenn Weil about his book, Radical Markets, which touches on many of the same political themes that come up today. That one should go out to subscribers in the next few weeks. All right, here's Martin. <laughs> Today, I'm speaking with Martin Guri. Martin is a geopolitical analyst and follower of new media and information dynamics. He spent many years working in a small part of the CIA dedicated to the analysis of openly available media such as television and newspapers. After leaving work in government, Guri focused his research on the impact that a networked public with access to a wide range of competing information sources has had on politics and culture, writing actively on his blog The Fifth Wave. He co-authored Our Visual Persuasion Gap in 2010, before in 2014 self-publishing The Revolt of the Public, The Crisis of Authority in the New Millennium. Many people have come to see the insights in that book as key to explaining changes in politics that have become highly visible in the last few years. As we record this interview, rioters in Paris seem to be acting out more or less the dynamic Martin outlines in his book. In reference to Trump and Brexit, economist Arnold Kling commented, Martin Gurry saw it coming. As a result, the book was officially published by Stripe Press this December, with a new series of chapters dedicated to recent events. So thanks so much for coming on the podcast, Martin. Well, um, happy to be here. Uh, Happy to talk to you. Happy to be hawking my book to your audience. (laughs) I I think they're going to enjoy it. So yeah, I I hope to get to talking about kind of counter arguments to the ideas you're putting forward and perhaps the implications that it might have for listeners who are trying trying to improve the world. But first, I I almost always start these interviews by asking, uh, what are you you working on at the moment and why do you think it's uh, really important? Well, I'm working on getting the ideas in the book out uh, as widely as possible, obviously. I wrote the book for a very particular reason, which is I thought that there was a misunderstanding or at least a a lack of understanding of the kind of world we live in. People kind of tend to look backwards, the rearview mirror, and I thought things had happened to our uh, technology and our, our, our social life that had profoundly changed the way we interact that had impacted politics as well, and that yet that most people were not aware of and kept using the old um, terminologies of politics and, and the old ideologies of politics that seemed to blind them to what was happening. So uh, the idea is right, trying to write articles, trying to write posts on my blog, trying to um, do things like I'm doing right here to disseminate the ideas and, um, like I said, hawk the book. All right. Well, let's let's dive into it. I'm going to going to try to move uh, fairly swiftly through outlining the ideas in the book because uh, listeners can, I guess, they can listen to the audiobook or they can buy the book. And I, I'll link to some MP3s where there's like already really good explanations. I guess you, you've given some talks and some other interviews. But nonetheless, uh, let's let's start at the beginning. Um, what is the core argument that you're making? Okay, the book is called "The Revolt of the Public." Baldly stated, the revolt of the public is a collision between information wielded by ordinary people 
and power represented by uh, the elites who run the institutions of, of modern society. That's the basic one-line description. I can go on a little bit if you want. Yeah, so I guess uh, what's, what's uh, changed about the public's relationship to kind of information and, and authority? Well, I believe you mentioned what was happening in uh, in France uh, recently with the, the yellow vests. And I hope before this is done, we have a chance to talk about Europe. But let's turn to the United States for a minute. Every institution we have inherited from that industrial age is in crisis. The elites, I think, who run these institutions are distrusted and despised. When you think back on uh, John F. Kennedy's day, uh, people would be asked, whether they trusted government. And the answers would range between 70 and 80%. Yes, we trust government. When you ask people today, it's below 30% invariably. If for Congress, it's in the teens. This isn't an American predicament. I just mentioned Europe. And this isn't just about government either. For example, um, journalism, the news, when you ask people whether they trust the news, they also get 30% or less. So the days when uh, a journalist, uh, an anchorman, could be voted the most trusted man in America, those days are long gone. So something has changed, right? Many things you can say have changed. One obvious change is between JFK's time and ours, the amount of information available to ordinary people has multiplied, I mean, virtually to infinity. From the time of the cave paintings until about the year 2000, information grew in this slow, stately manner. Uh, then things started to go crazy. In the year 2002, the amount of information doubled the previous total from all of history. 2003, it doubled 2002. That pattern has, has more or less continued. If you chart this trend, it looks like a gigantic wave, a tsunami. Now, if you read the book, uh, you know that I have that chart in the book. Uh, if you look at it hard enough, you can find almost anything that is happening now and that has followed. Uh, revolts, repudiation, the yellow vests, uh, the disintegration of institutions and almost of countries. Even if you look hard enough, you could probably find Donald Trump in there somewhere, okay? You can't look on that chart without thinking, how can human relations and institutions that are based on that old industrial model survive a battering from this monster? This came to me gradually as I worked at CIA. I don't know if you want to talk about that for a bit, because it was an interesting process uh, as it happened. It's kind of the core argument is that the, the, the public now has access to so many more points of view, so much more evidence, so much more information that they're, they're able to challenge authorities that previously they kind of just had to had to take their word for, for what, what they were saying. Yeah. How did you develop this theory? Or did you kind of have these ideas uh, back when you were working at the CIA and then uh, you, like develop them after you left? I worked at CIA, as you, as you probably have, have already mentioned, and I had what was probably the least glamorous, but it turned out to be the most significant corner to myself of that organization. I, I never had my double O license to kill, but, <laughs> but I had access to all of global media, if necessary, with translations. And let me tell you, I, I'm old enough that when I started doing that, even for a developed country, even for a Britain, for example, if you wanted to find what there was in open media that was of interest to the government of the United States, you could every day say, well, here's this very discreet package that this is what, what's going on in, in, in this particular country. At a certain moment, again, things started to go haywire. After, of course, uh, the, the digital uh, explosion hit, it became that even 
very underdeveloped countries with very little formal media suddenly had were awash with information. And what we noticed was as this wave was going around the world, politics started to go into turbulence. Uh, there was a very distinct correlation between the wave of information, the tsunami hitting these countries and their politics going uh, crazy. Some of them uh, had been countries that had been, if you think of Egypt, for example, uh, the Hoshni uh, Mubarak's regime, I mean, he was called a pharaoh. It, was, it had been there for 30 years. It was immovable. And his son was supposed to inherit when he died. And he was gone in three weeks. He was gone in three weeks. So there were a core of us there that thought this has completely radically changed the way the world works. Uh, the, the old world, the institutions owned the information. We trusted them because we had no alternative but to trust them. They were, for, for example, uh, the, they were the media, uh, and they told us this is the event you need to look at. The fact that there were many other events that were not being discussed wasn't obvious to anybody because they, they chose the same narrow set. Or you're the government and you're saying, well, this is what's important, you know, and you explained what, why it was important and you explained how it should be interpreted. So if it was 9-11, for example, even as, as close as that, you can say, well, they hate us because of our freedom and, 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 and not necessarily because of our foreign politics, right? So the, the people from the government, the elites that ran the government could had the authority to provide the information, frame it and explain the world. That's gone. That's completely gone. And with that gone, there's been a bleeding away of information, of authority, I'm sorry, for, uh, for government and for these institutions. And a public has been created that is essentially very angry. And we can discuss the reasons why, and they're all speculative. I mean, we can say without question that the public is not happy with the status quo. Why, why that is, is very debatable. But it is essentially mired in... Uh, what I call negation, it is against. Uh, the public, if you want to un unify uh, a, a movement, uh, like for example, the Yellow Vest in Europe, or the anti-Mubarak movement in, in, in Egypt, uh, or the Indignados in Spain, or the occupiers here in the US, there were people from very uh, different backgrounds, there were people from very different uh, ideologies. So the unified against. So the more against you could you could be, and the more you could you could build on that negation, uh, the more powerful these movements became. The problem with that, of course, is at some point you need a positive you know program. You need to transition to some kind of alternative to the status quo, and the public is, does not seem to be interested in that. So basically, it's it's a lot easier now for just random members of the public, you or me or you know anyone else, to challenge what scientists are saying, what journalists are saying, what politicians are saying. Just throw rocks yes. at them and say you got you guys are full of shit, basically. And this, basically, people are taking up this opportunity. Uh, they're, they're challenging all of these authorities, and basically, that their credibility is being whittled away. And I would say a lot of the times they're right. That's yeah. the unfortunate part. I mean, if you could say with. <laughs> If you said this is all fake news and this is all people who don't know what they're talking about, challenging experts who do know what they're talking about. But I think part of the mode of being of the old way that, by the way, I lived a sizable chunk of my life under, so I understand it very well, was there were people who knew and there were problems. As a, the word problem is a big word in the industrial market because you, then you come up with almost a mathematical solution to it. You know, every 
political situation, the political condition that people feel unhappy about is a problem that has a solution. And if you are running, for example, for president, you have this. I ha let me give you my solution. And what's happened now, of course, is whatever anybody says uh, in terms of running for office or I'll do this or I'll do that can be easily exposed for we don't really know. It turns out we know a lot less that the old model, the industrial model, pretended to know. I think this is all sincere. I don't think these people were lying or, or I'm not a conspiracy theorist. So I would say I probably miss a few conspiracies. But on the other hand, I, I, I see the world a lot more clearly than, than you know, powerful forces shaping these, these events. I think in, in the industrial era, People, I think Stalin probably believed very sincerely that by um, killing uh, hundreds of thousands of millions of people in the Ukraine, he could improve agriculture and, and bring social justice in a mode that hadn't been known before. These were sincere people. They were just wrong. And what's, happen what's happening now is a lot of the sort of pretense to knowledge has been exposed. And that, of course, has contributed to, to the sort of bleeding away of authority of these institutions. I'm inclined to uh, to somewhat defend authorities and institutions, uh, at least relative to the current kind of zeitgeist. But there's no question that like scientists often overstated how much they knew that journalists just get things wrong all the time. That politicians sometimes are absolutely absolute hypocrites. Um, but it's a kind of a it's a question of balance between like yeah, you need to the institutions are trying to make the best of what are often very tricky situations, uh, but also uh, they, they need to be perhaps more honest with the public about what they can and can't do. Well, um, I would say in a sense, you know, the public. And then we can talk about what the public is. Is that that's that's actually a pretty not an easy answer for that one. Uh, but the public, as I define it, is as I say, it, mired on negation, almost sometimes to nihilism. But on the other hand, who is it in a democratic country that you can say is responsible for these politicians? I mean, if a person comes to us running for president and says, I think I have something that may improve the situation, but let's try trial and error and see whether it works or not, that guy would never get anywhere. You know, they, you, nobody would vote for that person. If a person says, I, "I'll build a wall," or "I'll, you know, I'll do this, I'll do that," and that will solve all our problems, suddenly everybody votes for that person. But then you have created a con where whatever he does, even if he succeeds in doing what he says he's going to do, it's probably not going to address that situation. And then again, the the negation flows in. Yeah, talk talk a little bit more about this this negation issue. Well. The public today is very different, and and I liked you sent me a list of counterfactuals to uh, to the revolt of the public. I love them. I love counterfactuals, and one of them was well, what about 1968? 1968, I remember it. By the way, you don't, <laughs> but I do. <laughs> yeah, uh, was a year of turbulent turbulence worldwide. You had it in China, you had it in the U.S., you had it in France, you had it in Czechoslovakia, all over. And I would say. There's a couple of things there, right? The history, the interpretation of, of events can never rise to the level of a science because you can't control for it, right? I can't run a version of the Arab Spring in which I take away Al Jazeera and the internet and see what happens. All we have is the instance that actually did happen. So there may be very well some kind of deep connection between these, these turbulent moments in history. That's a subject of uh, research for uh, young people like yourselves. I'm more interested in the differences. And the differences, of course, are that when you look back at what a radical or a revolutionary or a person who made trouble 
uh, was in those days. They were like a little mirror image of the establishment themselves. In fact, the more revolutionary that you were, the more disciplined and hierarchical uh, that your organization was. Uh, and you had an ideology, a very hard ideology, and you had programs that you wanted to, to impose. And of course, you wanted to impose them. Therefore, you wanted to run the government. So there were all these accepted ambitions of the turbulence of 1968 that is very different from today. Today, the public has no program. It has no ideology or many ideologies. You you look at a, uh, a movement like, like the Yellow Vest today or like uh, the Indignados in Spain, and the, literally they would say everybody could talk for themselves, but somehow having a general ideology was considered to be taboo. They do not want to seize the government. They're not storming the, the palaces of power. They have no interest in that. So what you have today is a public that is mired in negation in the sense that it wants the government and the status quo to be completely different and yet wants not to be involved in that change other than to stand from outside and say, we don't like what's going on. That's pretty unique in history as far as I can tell. Yeah. So, so if I understand you correctly, you're saying information technology has made it so easy to kind of challenge any uh, and, to, and to question and to criticize kind of any actual concrete proposals that are put forward. Uh, such that, uh, like, yeah, these revolutionary movements or these these political movements today, much more than in the past, are just focused on opposing things and like complaining about like the problems uh, that, that, that the current political system is producing, rather than putting forward like concrete policies that would fix it, or yeah, putting for or, or or running for office and trying to gain power themselves. They're, they're much less interested in that than than protest movements used to be. Yeah, when you look at all these movements, there's always seems to be a a dribble of individuals that eventually migrate over to electoral politics and immediately are sort of like excommunicated by the original radicals because joining uh, even democratic politics, these are all democratic countries I'm talking about, somehow is is selling out. It's, you, you now join the status quo and that's, that's not what people want. Another aspect of that too, though, is what uh, Clay Shirky, whose book I think is, is one of the truly uh, anticipatory uh, documents. So, uh, because he wrote it before all these things happened, okay? Um, I had the privilege of watching them happen in CIA. He was just kind of looking into the future and predicting and projecting and, and, and got it right. He calls it self-assembling. And so what you had before was before you could put a crowd on the streets, you needed an organization, you needed a plan, you needed printing presses to have little handouts, you know, the mimeograph machine. That was what I had in 1968. You want to have anti-war. You know, it was a very deeply organized thing. Today, you all meet on Facebook. And so nobody knows you're there. These are mainly, um, like in France, for example, these are closed Facebook groups. You, you need to, to be able to ask to get in there. And at a certain moment, they say, let's go on the streets. And suddenly, out of nowhere, according, you know, for, for, the, uh, for, for the elites, out of nowhere comes tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people angry and, and burning cars and, and vandalizing banks and so forth. That couldn't be done organize, self-assemble a crowd, in, in Clay Shirky's terms, uh, in the old days. You needed a lot of footwork. Yeah, so what, what sorts of people are participating in these new, new movements? Every sort, pretty much. I mean, if there, were, if there is a typical, and I hate to use that because there are many, many counterfactuals there, it, it tends to be relatively young people, by which I mean uh, mid-30s and under, tends to be very educated people, college educated mostly, 
tends to be relatively affluent. People h- hardly ever have there been, uh, in fact, I can't think of a single instance where marginalized, uh, economically marginalized groups or racial or ethnic minorities led one of these groups. Maybe uh, Black Lives Matter would be the exception. Almost none of these groups, and, and Black Lives Matter, when you look at the people who began it, they were, again, these educated and they were not marginalized human beings. So there is a strain of thought that this is all the product of globalization. And it's a question that when you look at Trump voters, for example, there's a strain of that. When you look at the yellow vests in in, uh, France, there is a deep strain of that. It's fun to look at their uh, postings. I mean, you see this nice looking, gray haired, so grandmotherly lady on YouTube, basically yelling at Macron, for his policies, and 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 you realize that the power of of this digital instrument through which we are communicating right now is amazing. It's an amazing thing. How did this woman, um, and she's a famous. I mean, she got millions of hits, uh, become a star in uh, in this particular public for articulating exactly what everybody was feeling, even though she was just somebody from the provinces in France. So I think that uh, something that you dwell on a bit in the book is that, is that it is somewhat surprising that often the people who are leading these uh, strident protest movements are themselves people who are doing quite well. They're, they're quite wealthy. Yep. They're not necessarily unemployed at all. They're potentially very educated, like living a lot longer than than their parents. Uh, yep. Is is that a difference from from the past, or is it just the case that like typically protest movements have always been led by kind of people who have the resources and the time to to dedicate to political organization? That's a good question. Uh, Probably you're right. I mean, I don't know. I haven't researched that. I think you're probably right. I mean, Lenin was essentially a, a bureaucratic aristocrat. Uh, his family was. But I think the difference is that all of this has been done, it, it tended to be done in the past on behalf of the disadvantaged. So yes, and and with participation from those groups. So Yes, when you look at the civil rights movement, it was obviously not the downtrodden sharecroppers that were doing the sit-ins and stuff like that. But they were, the leading edge of it was were the black churches. They were the people who were most intimately concerned with, with attaining justice in, in, in that moment. Whereas now, there's very little. There's mainly a sense that the government and, and the status quo in general is, is wrong and is uh, distant and is uh, not responsive and is corrupt. Um, and every time uh, something is promised and it, it doesn't work out, it's never in, interpreted as uh, incompetence. It's always interpreted as corruption, right? So that adds to the uh, sense that these, these people pretend to have authority and knowledge, but have none. They're just there for their own benefit. But on the other hand, the public is not putting forward a, well, if we do plan A, plan B, or plan C, we'll we'll achieve utopia. I mean, the industrial model, in the end, whether you were in Russia or the United States, had this long utopian view. In the end, we were going to solve all the problems, uh, and all human relationships were going to be somehow smoothed out if we did all the right things, and we were going to achieve utopia. Uh, that's been lost. That's not there in the thought of the of the public today. All there is is anger at at what uh, people in power are doing, and the wish to kind of uh, change that or erase that in some way. Sometimes just to batter it, just to smash at it. Uh, I thought it very symbolic that the yellow vests in, in, in France were smashing at uh, the Arc de Triomphe. Right, I gained nothing by that except a sense of uh, this stands for the system as I know it. And I'm just going to smash this statue and and vandalize it. 
Yeah, I think something that's interesting is in as much as these protest movements are being led by people who on paper seem to be doing quite well, potentially they have jobs, their income is okay, they're like they're not in ill health, they're not being discriminated against per se. It's a desert that's quite a bit harder to solve because if it was being led by people who are you know unemployed and had low incomes, then perhaps we could just hope to have social programs that, that could fix these things. But in as much as it's um, people who are actually already doing quite well, it's going to be a lot harder to, 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 to satisfy them because perhaps they're their hopes and aspirations are like beyond what society can can provide just given current technology. Well, I guess you have to ask yourself, what is it? I mean, you look at uh, the economy right now and the economy for the last, since 2008, I think 2008 was a wake up moment for a lot of people. And I think it was less, and this is speculation, it, it, it was less people being thrown out of work. Well, that was some of that, but there was, for example, no uh, political uh, backlash from that for years. And more a sense of these people in charge have no clue what they're doing, which was what it looked like in 2008. And I think that has percolated down. Um, so if you want to look at how you go around uh, about changing the situation, turning it around to a, in a more positive direction, you have to ask yourself, well, how do you reconcile the public with the system? And I would say a really good way not to do it would be to assume that if you are against the system, you are racist, you are homophobic, you are Islamophobic, you are this, you are that, the other, which seems to be the way the elites respond almost reflexively when they have um, movements, they, they see movements that contradict their, their piety. Just like the public never sees incompetence, always sees vile corruption at the top, right? This is people who are bad people. Uh, the elites never see people with genuine grievances. They see bad people who are almost uh, deranged in their in their passions, I would say. So how do you reconcile them? Well, again, we go back to, I think part of what, what the public does not uh, like about the, the, the current situation is the distance between themselves and their rulers. Uh, and by that, I mean the social distance. I mean, it's a really strange thing, Rob, when you think about it. We elect these individuals who were, most of them, normal human beings when they got elected, okay? And it is a case that they go away to Washington, start acting strangely, speak a language that nobody speaks like. I mean, they speak politiques, I guess you could say. Start hiding behind uh, bodyguards and metal detecting machines. And have you ever been to Washington? Uh, I have, yeah. It's, it's okay, opposing. Well, it, it feels like the imperial capital, no question. It's like, it, well, I mean... I, I've lived here most of my life. I used to be able to walk into the State Department and, hi, how are you? And I would walk right in, all right? Uh, right now, they stop you a block away from the State, State Department. And, and even if you are, as I was, a member of the government, they would stop you a block away from the State Department. And who are you and why are you here, all right? Uh, you are almost the enemy by being the public almost uh, by default. So this is a sense that these people have retreated back there. And, okay, if they delivered a society that is one that I am happy with, uh, you, I might let them get away with it, but people are very unhappy about various things that are happening and they speak out. And then that distance just basically drowns out their voices. The, the elites don't hear the public. It's very, very strange. It's just like you're always surprised when the public appears on the street. This has happened again and again. You think that they're expected by now. They don't. They, they just don't see any legitimacy, any existence to the public. So when you have that distance, I mean... Just distrust becomes pretty natural. Yeah, yeah. And, and, they, and you want to cure that, it becomes a question of uh, what is a legitimate elite? 
what, how, do you, how do you arrive at a le legitimate elite? And that's, of course, a very complicated question, and, and probably you and I could talk about it for hours and, and not get to, to uh, an end of it. But a very, simple, a very simple way of looking at it is a truly healthy, genuine elite, the people in it have attributes that everybody else aspire to have. Okay. And that's not that rare. I mean, in my lifetime, people would say you have to be honest like George Washington was, or you have to persevere like Thomas Edison persevered. And I mean, Washington and, and uh, Edison were probably both pretty thorny characters. Uh, and you could pick out their flaws if you want to. But in those days, people preferred to look at that in them that was admirable. All right. And I, I think we need, and by we, I mean the public. Uh, the public selects the elites by turning to them and saying, okay, you do things for us. We basically live out, are embedded in the narratives that, that, that we find to be acceptable. People who are not distant, people who are like us and in, in, don't lose themselves in the environment when they get elected, as seems to happen now. Yeah, so I, I want to show some degree of self-awareness here uh, by asking, like, you know, where, where, where do I fall in, in this picture and where do perhaps listeners fall? Because I was thinking... I, I probably identify as you know kind of an authority or part of like the part of the establishment to a surprising degree, given that I'm not American and like <laughs> not especially wealthy and don't really have that much political power either. So I, yeah. I, 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 I feel like I'm part of this part of this group to some extent, um, and and that might seem natural. So of course I'm going to be defensive about about these uh, movements challenging uh, like whether whether you know I really know what I'm talking about. But I, I also wonder like maybe when I thought about this more, it's like is it actually the case that me and me and my, me and the, the listeners to this show are you know are kind of part of the establishment or, or, because so many of these people who are part of these um, um, movements that are against the against the existing establishment are kind of young people, very educated people, people who are potentially doing quite well and want to change the world and like create a much better world. It might be that in fact it's like a much more mixed picture that we're like partly part of the establishment but partly not. On the other hand, it does seem I, I think that the effective altruism community. Uh, is like very inclined to try to come up with very specific policy, you know, concrete policy proposals to how they would change things, which is perhaps one way in which we we wouldn't really fit into these uh, new new protest movements very naturally. Right. Yeah, I, I get that a lot. Is who am I? Either, <laughs> right? uh, that's a good question. I I, I mean, I, I was in the U.S. government. You know, not not like I was there a mover and a shaker. Like I said, I never got my double O license. But I, I, I saw it from inside. I saw, I saw, and let me tell you, there are a lot of, I mean, just a, a very brief example. Uh, there is in CIA, when you walk in, uh, a wall that has stars on it. No names, just stars. These are the people who have died uh, uh, serving their country in CIA. Between the time I joined CIA and the time I left, at least the number of stars had doubled, okay? At least had doubled. And I found them to be, the people I dealt with, brilliant, dedicated, hardworking. So this is, you know, I, I've seen uh, the swamp, so to speak, from the inside. And, and it's composed of good people, well-meaning people. I suspect the public, when you look at them, uh, it's the same thing. These are people who are good people, well-meaning people. It's structurally, they are positioned such that they cannot seem to understand one another. Uh, the elites, honestly, when you get to the high reaches at least, seem to like that industrial distance. The industrial model was everything happens from the top down. Uh, I have a, accredited expertise. I probably have gone to very many famous universities and gotten a lot of degrees. 
I uh, therefore speak in a pseudoscientific language that kind of makes me sound like I really know what I'm talking about. And you, by the way, have none of those attributes. Therefore, why are you even talking to me? You're kind of a deplorable person. So that's what the one side sees. The public structurally seems to be saying, we elected you, you have disappeared into the clouds, you seem to be chasing women or men or whatever, you know, spending your time doing things that would shame a Hollywood star. You are playing with our money and not doing very well with that. And we want to erase that. We want to batter that. We want to take those institutions that have lifted you so high up and break them down so you can come closer to where we are. And between these two points of view, uh, bridges need to be built. And we can discuss how that might happen, but it's not the individuals involved necessarily who are villainous. There is. I started the book, by the way, thinking I had a side. I thought I, I started the book thinking that I was on the side of the public. And the more I wrote the book, and the more I researched the book, I'm sorry, the more I researched the book, I the more I realized that there were very many aspects about these movements that I was very uncomfortable with. They were not my side. I don't have a side on this struggle. I'm just kind of diagnosing it. And I, f- I feel like if you see what's going on in, th- in these terms, a lot of the um, words that we use, like liberal and conservative, right? Uh, okay, that's the 19th century British English politics, okay? Or right and left, for God's sakes, as 18th century French politics, okay? These terms are put a veil in front of our eyes that, that prevents us from seeing the reality of what's going on, which is not right or left, conservative or liberal, uh, but there is a structural uh, collision between uh, a, a, a digitalized public and industrialized uh, elites. So I want to get want to get onto hitting you with with some potential counter arguments, but but just before we get there, yeah, uh, just so that the audience has in mind uh, lots of concrete examples that they can you know uh, have at their fingertips. I guess we've got like the so the protest movements in you know France and Spain and I guess Greece. Uh, we've got Brexit. Yep. We've got kind of the the, the Trump thing. Mm-hmm. I guess also Bernie Sanders. Um, we've yep. got got the whole Arab Spring. Yep. Uh, are there any others that people should have in, in mind as as we go on discussing this? Well, yeah, I mean, uh, it just happened in Brazil. Mm, yeah, uh, Brazil. Uh, uh, Venezuela has a it hasn't won, so it doesn't get the big uh, splash. But the Venezuelans have been trying, and they they have a big online presence. The opposition there does. There is, of course, in Europe, from Sweden down to Spain, there have been movements that have been uh, basically energized about uh, immigration policies, for example, and and Germany uh, as well. Uh, Angela Merkel, pretty much. Is a, is, is a shadow of herself. Angela Merkel, probably her tenure is, is, is to be counted now in months and not years. You look at what's happening in Britain with Theresa May, and I mean, they just rung her through the ringer of a party no confidence vote. She won that, but she still has to get the Brexit vote, and um, who knows, right? So, so these European leaders, almost everywhere, almost everywhere, the popular ones right now, who, who, what is the most popular government in the EU right now? I, 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 let me ask you. Yeah, it's tricky. I mean, I guess like Angela Merkel is, like is moderately tricky. popular, moderately popular. So I guess that's maybe the best you can do at the moment. It is tricky. I'd say probably the Italian government. The Italian government is two populist parties that are as different as a cat and a dog, okay? Uh, and they have somehow coalesced into a government. And they are, of course, very anti-status quo, very anti-everything that's happened before, anti-the EU. So far, they have not been irresponsible about it. They have just been pushing back on the EU, pushing back on immigration. They don't want immigration. They have a 68% uh, 
uh, approval rating in, in, in Italy, which is pretty astounding in this day and age. Probably won't last because they, they think they'll tend not to last, but it's pretty amazing. And I, I was in Italy recently and I had my Thomas Friedman moment, you know, when you use temperature. <laughs> you, 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 I don't know if you ever read Thomas. Friedman. Yeah, no, I'm familiar. I, I have to admit I've stopped, but, but, uh, <laughs> His his articles tend to invariably begin with well I, I took a taxi cab in Yemen or something you know and then <laughs> yeah. the taxi cab pretty the, the, the cabbie pretty much explains the situation to you well I had my my Thomas Friedman moment in 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 Rome where um, he was the taxi cab driver was was playing this uh, political radio basically and it was left wing political radio and so I asked him what what he felt like and he gave me that kind of a mushy answer so I said well so are you optimistic or pessimistic and he said. I'm Italian. He says, I'm disgusted. Okay? <laughs> so that is the public, right? For a government to have 68% approval rating when the default is disgusted is pretty amazing. So I would say this is something that is happening. I mean, you mentioned in your counterfactuals places like Canada and so forth where it hasn't happened. But it's happening in, in uh, more places than, than we even talked about here. Yeah, uh, so, so so there's the five star movement in in Italy. I guess so. Yeah. So what do, what do you say about countries like um, Canada or Australia or New Zealand or I guess you know Japan, China, maybe even uh, where like people seem <clears throat> at least like moderately satisfied with with their governments and there haven't been like large large protest movements. So is it just a matter of time or is it uh, the case that there's like different dynamics in in different places? Yeah, China. Let's put aside that is yeah, a very kind of its own thing. Very inscrutable country. The others, well. Here's what I believe. What I believe is each country has its own culture and its own traditions and its own history and its own habits and, and its own default moods of, of dealing with, with events and, and crises and situations. My framework gets overlaid on that. OK, it's not I, I am not like Karl Marx, who believes that. Uh, the class struggle is inevitable and the rise of the proletariat is inevitable. Revolution is inevitable. I believe quite the opposite of that. I believe I have come to believe that nothing is inevitable. Uh, nothing can be predicted uh, in human events. So there may well be local reasons for uh, why uh, a Canada or an Australia hasn't seen a movement like Occupy Wall Street or the Tea Party or the Brexit uh, crowd in, in, in Britain or the Yellow Vest in France. It could also mean that tomorrow it might happen there. I don't know. If their local situation, the dial is turned in a certain way, it, and all that I'm saying is this framework is there in every country. In every every country that has access to the digital world, that's almost every country today with about maybe four exceptions, where if there is a problem, I mean, there was no problem in France until suddenly there was. I mean, that literally happened within, within weeks. Um, so... For all we know, there are people in Canada who are meeting on Facebook right now and saying, damn, we're going to have to get together and do whatever, you know, get those uh, SOBs in, in, uh, in the government, uh, show them, show them what, what they need to be shown or not or not. Do we actually know whether like the, the number of you know street protests and the level of dissatisfaction with with governments is is higher than than before? Because of course there was there's been lots of protests, lots of like you know somewhat revolutionary movements uh, throughout history. There was like more communists and anarchists in 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 the past than, than there are typically today. Uh, so it's not not entirely obvious that things are more turbulent than they were you know through 1950 through 1990. I 100 percent agree. I 100 percent agree. And I mean in the olden days there were groups that were dedicated. I mean there. There were tiny little hierarchies whose job it was 
to create disturbances, right? Uh, that doesn't really happen anymore. These things really are sort of as close to being unplanned as you can be. Uh, so that, yeah, no, I think that number-wise, uh, no, probably not. I haven't studied that. I haven't seen any, any study that has counted those things. But my gut feeling is that it probably in numbers, no. Yeah, okay. So, so you're not necessarily saying that there's like more protest movements in the past. It's just that their their nature uh, has changed. They're more spontaneous. They're more just against things rather than putting things forward. And and they can like, yeah, they can appear and disappear like very, very rapidly because the public can organize itself and like develop its own ideas very fast. Yeah, with, with the speed of light, literally. I mean, and you look at the, the digital world, you can create a Facebook page as happened in, e in, in Egypt uh, that is an oppositional Facebook page and you can say, let's have a let's have a meeting. Let's let's get together at Tahrir Square on 25 January of 2011. And several several pages did that, uh, and tens of thousands of people showed up. And the rest is history, literally. So that couldn't happen before. Yeah. So this this whole kind of model that you have of what's going on, uh, you know, sounds sounds very plausible uh, when I, when I was reading the book. It, it seems like it seems like it could be right. But I, I worry that it's like quite easy to kind of spin a narrative that, that seems to explain what's going on, just given that there's like not that many data points and it's so hard to understand <laughs> the whole world. So kind of lots of lots of different things can sound plausible. So I'm curious to like push on this a little bit. It's like, how, how, do, how do we know that it's that it is the Internet, which is kind of driving this rather than, than some other uh, other phenomenon? Um, and I think sometimes people can be a little bit too credulous at you know, just accepting arguments that the Internet has changed things. For example, there's this whole idea of filter bubbles that like people are just they just end up reading their own like extremist content again and again and only only getting exposed to articles that they that they agree with but I, i've read like decent evidence that this is kind of a myth that by and large people actually mostly get uh, they, they get more dissonant more conflicting information on the internet than they, than they do in real life and that they used to get in, in you know before the internet so yeah how do we really know that it's kind of uh, the, the internet or social media that, that that's doing these things rather than rather than some other other phenomenon well let's put it in a laboratory take out the internet <laughs> and see what happens <laughs> we can't yeah, know we can't, yeah. we can't know i i would say if the framework that I provide, you know, you, you can you can give ideas and, and, and projections of what would happen if it was not the way that my thesis seems to be indicating. And you can say, well, if the th thesis is, is really what I think it is, then these other things would happen. Um, the book has taken off, in essence, because those things that the thesis seemed to be indicating have come to pass. I mean, the, the real big moment for my book, my best friend is Donald Trump, because when he got elected, everybody said, oh my God, Martin Gurry predicted this. Well, I didn't. I mean, there, there was no mention of him in, in the book, uh, although there is now, because I wrote a, an essay at, uh, for the new edition, but there were those projections of what would happen if, uh, if this was, uh, if my thesis really was the case. Now, whether underneath my thesis, it's the internet. Well, I mean, human events are very complex. It's not just the internet. That's, that's a pretty obvious thing. Uh, it, it's the fact that we are coming down from an industrial model that pretended to knowledge that it didn't have, that had uh, command and control systems that were probably the most efficient and therefore most controlling uh, and, and most hierarchical that we have ever known in history. And probably any number of other events, uh, 2008 being one, for example, um, the, the big economic crisis, and any number of others that play into this. Human events are by nature complex. I only feel like there is, if you tease out one aspect of what is happening now that is different from anything that's happened in history before, all right, it's that tsunami chart. 
and, and when you think about institutions that are based on much tinier uh, pots of information, each con- controlled by some elite institution, and the fact that this the tsunami has just swept over it and just basically bashed them, that strikes me as the most significant change from the past. Is it the only one? Obviously not. Can I positively prove only when... I mean, eventually it will be disproven. Every every assertion you make about an event, any interpretation of human events eventually is disproven. And I, it's a hypothesis, it's a thesis. I think it explains the world we live in. It clarifies it. I think people live right now in a state of confusion and frustration because there is so much noise, so much turbulence, and they go back then to their, well, I'm a Republican, I'm a Democrat, and it doesn't seem to somehow explain anything, okay? And I hope anyway that my the, the thesis in my book can shed some light as to what is actually happening. And then you can still go back to being a Republican or a Democrat, a liberal or a conservative, but you have to add this added dimension to it. So people might be, might be skeptical that like uh, yeah, new communications technology could, could really revolutionize society and and politics, but I think that the standard view is that like past past changes in communications technology um, have have had revolutionary impacts. Like the alphabet, uh, you know, made it possible to have like big social structures in a way that was much more difficult before. Uh, we've got like um, the printing press. Uh, people think that that caused potentially a lot of conflict within Europe uh, and the Protestant Reformation. Then you've got uh, like radio. People think uh, supported kind of totalitarian social structures because it was kind of from one point you could broadcast to everyone. Do you want to talk a little bit about about the about the history here and and, and why we should why we should maybe uh, expect that uh, the internet could you know have really revolutionary implications yeah and, and implications is good I, I don't use the word cause because of course every human uh transition it has many many causes these are technological changes that enable uh social and political change may do it may not but the, the cause obviously is maybe political social and it could come from many different directions and um yeah at a certain point it occurred to me that when you look at this, many books that have been written on this, the history of communications, there was a certain kind of society that depended on the hieroglyph. You know, the China was kind of on the same model. And you needed mandarins for them, people who have been trained very deeply in how to write this very complex set of symbols so you could actually keep records that then the, a very top-down government, uh, which was not possible until then, uh, could use to maintain order. The alphabet made possible the classical republics, Greece and Rome. You could not have had those republics without a fairly literate public, and you couldn't have had that without um, an alphabet. Did the alphabet cause democracy in in Athens? No, Uh, it just made it possible. It just made it possible. It was a technological breakthrough that was seized by these very brilliant people at that moment in Athens and turned it to their advantage in, in the invention of democracy. The printing press, honestly... I think was a bigger thing than the internet and the digital revolution. I think the printing press may have been the biggest because suddenly what had been a very small trickle of written materials became a flood. And if you read a lot of the elites of those days, they sound even more hysterical than the elites of our days. It's like, what the heck? Why are these people writing these books? They don't know anything about anything, and yet they can publish a book. Who's, who's going to stop that? And of course, governments set up these very elaborate censorship mechanisms, but there was always another country somewhere outside that wanted to stick it to that country, and they would set up the printing presses, and the material would still make it there. And as you say, it didn't create the um, scientific revolution. I mean, you think about trying to maintain information being conveyed uh, about scientific experiments 
with handwritten scrolls. I mean, that would have been that's just an entirely different order of problem than with being published. It enabled that. It enabled the French Revolution. It enabled the American Revolution. It didn't create any of those things, but it enabled them. So it was probably, in my mind, the most revolutionarily um, turbulent technological change. After that, you had mass media. And mass media came at a moment when, that moment in the industrial age that I keep talking about, hundreds of millions of people entered uh basically history. I mean, what I mean by that is they had lived in their little valleys and their little pockets and not changed uh, dramatically since the Middle Ages. Suddenly, the ideal of equality was made very important. The idea that there's several books about this as well, where people from the countryside and from uh, the lower parts of, of the economic uh, range were made into citizens. They had to be educated. They had to be taught certain uh, ideals about who they were, what their politics was supposed to be like. But mass media was a very top-down method. It was a very top-down method. In the end, it was a, I'm going to educate you method. And so I'm going to, I, the expert, will tell you how to behave. And here's a newspaper which is published in one little place somewhere. But that's all the news, you, uh, all the news is fit to print. You don't need to look at anything else. Here it is, right? And then you have our current digital uh, model, which is very flat, very fast, very transient. People think that everything, you know, the young people who worry that their naked pictures are going to last forever and haunt them in their careers, you know. Uh, the, the thing that's more, most remarkable about um, digital information is how transient it is. A lot of it just goes away. Formats change. And when the formats change, whole reams of information goes away. Um, look around my house and, and I have discs that look like nothing on earth. I don't know what would play those discs anymore. I have no idea what's in those discs. It's gone. So this very fast, very transient allows you to give vent to your opinions in a very fast and, and very immediate way uh, that now collides with that old mass media, mass the industrial way of, of uh, basically commanding society. And where this is going to go, um, it's very early days. I mean... The web was late 90s, late 90s. It seems like it's been here forever. Probably for you it has been, but for me, not so. And um, history works even even today when it seems like everything is sped up. And I think actually there's some data to show that it really has sped up. But even so, social and political changes work slowly. They work slowly. So where we're headed with this, I don't know, but... It's going to be already, I can tell, it, it, there's, you know, fasten your seatbelts. There's turbulence ahead. Yeah. So I thought one piece of evidence that you could potentially, you know, use to bolster your argument might be to, to look at, at the at the individual level. Is it people who are using these new like information technologies and, uh, and like absorbing these new sources of information? Uh, who are the ones who are most likely to be dissatisfied and distrustful and, and part of these uh, part of these new political movements? Um, so, for example, you might find that, say, low-income people uh, are like less likely to use the internet, and perhaps they're also the least likely to, to be disillusioned, which would be like paradoxical and, and might like, but but would like be, be potentially explained by your thesis. I mean, that, that what you just said there was 100% the case. Whether that necessarily uh, that supports the thesis, I think, is somewhat. But there's no question that these movements are uh, begun by individuals who are masters of the digital conversation, all right? And you don't get to be that way if you don't own a computer, if you don't have a connectivity, 
usually that comes along with some kind of higher education. Um, and you look at some some of these movements like Occupy Wall Street, which were really uh, in terms of individuals who joined, it was a very tiny movement. It was huge because it had this this online presence, this this uh, clever way of you know the ninety nine percent versus the one percent. You know they had big uh, a campaign in which people would show with a little card what what being part of the ninety nine percent meant. You know they had a resonance way beyond their numbers because they were so brilliant at um, at manipulating the digital conversation. And these were all people who. You know, were not marginalized. These were mostly uh, college-educated individuals. So, so I've seen some evidence that, at least uh, for the pro-Trump movement, the people involved were, were more likely to be using cable news than, uh, than than using the internet, or at least like relative to, to, to people with other other political views. I'm not sure how 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 strong that evidence is. Perhaps it's wrong. But yeah, do you want to talk a little bit about how, say, cable news fits into this argument? Was that kind of a precursor to to the internet? But you think it also created like similar similar effects? Yeah, I mean, not just cable news, but satellite. I think that trajectory that I talked about uh, when I was sitting in my um, analyst chair at CIA watching the, 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 the global media slowly go crazy, um, the, very first, the very first explosion of information was not digital in the sense of the internet. There was no internet yet. It was television. Uh, somehow or another, television became uh, kind of like a symbol of a modern country. If you had good television, you were a modern country. And if you were a uh, primitive uh, country, then you had what the Egyptians had in 1980, which was two channels that were literally all Mubarak all the time. I mean, it was just deadly. So um, a man like Hosni Mubarak, dictator, he wants his country to be modern. So bring in, bring in the channels, right? Bring in the channels. Ten years later, there were 400 channels, and you could get almost anything in Cairo that you wanted to in terms of television uh, from anywhere in the world, including the state television from Libya, where it was all Gaddafi all the time, okay? So basically, television is probably to this day the most powerful medium. One of the really interesting changes that I actually researched some, and I wish I had had the time to research more, is the fact that what we call the digital age is in some ways uh, the victory of the image over the printed word. People tend to look at YouTube and uh, television, regular television of many kinds. The Al Jazeera's of the world, for example, had a just tremendous impact. They said words that had never been heard of on television in many countries. So that, uh, I think, yes, uh, the television had and has an enormous impact. I think it's fracturing as everything else is today. It's fracturing along many different ways. And um, when you look at the numbers of cable news in the United States, I am really kind of, people tend to ascribe demonic powers to Fox News. I mean, they hit 4 million viewers on a, on a really good week, okay? We have, we have 320 million people in this country. That, that's not a lot. So, and of course, uh, MSNBC and uh, CNN are, are less than that. So if you add them all up together, it's, it's not very many. So yes, they are part of the package. And I think in the Trump era, they are they seem to be like um, echo chambers almost to all the noise that's going on elsewhere. But it's not a significant player, I don't think. So what are, what are your points is that the, the public is uh, more nihilistic than before, more just against rather than, than for anything. But how, how sure are we that that's, that that's true? Because it seems like, you know, for example, you know, Bernie Sanders has, you know, quite a, quite a significant platform. You know, his supporters like things like Medicare for all, uh, 
Trump uh, like wants to build the wall. He's got like at least some specific policy proposals. Uh, you know, he wants to like yeah have like tariffs on China, that kind of thing. The Brexit people, they, they, you know, they were in favor of leaving the EU. That's like a specific policy proposal. I guess you might say it's like it's more about what they're against than what they're for. But that's often the case with like opposition movements in the past. I would imagine that it's like easier to corral people to be against something than to like tell them exactly what they're in favor of. So I'm wondering how do, how do we know that there really has been a shift here? Well, I mean, I, I, I really do think that all those examples, the people that joined were very much motivated by what they were against, very much motivated by what they were against. And when you look at what they write, uh, they don't write about the, the magnificent Sanders vision for the future. They write about the, the things that they want to obliterate and to leave behind. Uh, I mean, there's a big trail, uh, both digitally and, and uh, paper, of, of uh, these people writing about their movements that they have joined. And in many cases, uh, from the Indignados and the Yellow Vest, they have nothing they advocate. I mean, there really is, they, they, you cannot pin them down to say, give me one thing that you want done. They will say things, they, they will start spouting things that they would like to happen, but there's none that the entire group uh, has gathered around. And oftentimes they're very contradictory. Um, I think the, the tent protesters, tent city protesters in Israel wanted, for example, to abolish tuition and to increase the pay of college professors. So you go, okay, how's that going to work out? So it was just like, in, make it a perfect world is what they were saying. So my feeling is that they, they are very much motivated by what they're against. These uh, individuals like Sanders provide a vehicle for that. Uh, Sanders gives a kind of an old, old-timey socialist uh, face to, to that, that negation. But um, I saw very little in terms of uh, what people were saying on that side and more of what they were saying of what they were trying to change away from. Yeah, I guess I, I'd be very interested to, to, to see some case studies of you know, uh, other, other protest movements in the past and see to what extent they were united by what they're against versus what they were for. I guess it, it, seemed, it seems like you might be right, but I suppose I also want it's possible that protest movements in the 20s and 30s also like really focused on negation because that's just easier. Yeah, no, I, I actually... I think you're right. And I mean, I remember long, long ago doing a lot of research on Marxist and, and communist movements and, and you know, the big the big names in, in, in the ideology and realizing having that exact realization is that they were a little sketchy on what was going to happen when they took over. But they, <laughs> but they were but they were really, really sharply focused on the injustices of the moment. Yeah. So, I mean, and maybe it's a human thing. I think it's in this particular case, there isn't even in most cases a, an elaborated ideology, an elaborated set of programs that stand as, well, in the end, if we win, this is what we want to do. And bear in mind that many of these people, many of these movements are not even interested in taking power. Power to them is corrupt. It's essentially corrupt. So they, they don't want to participate in that. They want power to decorrupt itself in some way that is never explained. And then and then you get to, well, change the tax or do this or do the other. There's specific grievances that they, they immediately fasten on to. But uh, yeah, so that, that, that would be it. So I guess another oddity, uh, or at least something that seems kind of inconsistent with your theory, is that I've looked at opinion polling on just a, a wide range of, of different questions that, I, that I'll stick up links to. And it seems across a whole bunch of issues like, you know, support for trade, uh, you know, enthusiasm about immigration, attitudes to guns and abortion and like levels of taxes, like the average level of opinion is like actually remarkably stable over the last 10, 20, even, even 30 years. Uh, it's like, most people remain like moderately enthusiastic about trade in the US even even today when you know uh, Donald Trump is bashing it and this is kind of a big political issue where it, where it didn't used to be. I, I suppose I, th I think 
there probably has been a bit more of a, of a splintering where like the, the parties are now more uh, polarized than they used to be. It used to be that like, you know, uh, two thirds of people in both the Democrats and Republicans were like mildly pro-trade, whereas now it's like they, they've kind of diverged. But but how, do, how does the you know stability on like public polling on these questions fit with your theory? Yeah, that's that's a good question. I mean, I was a young man during the Vietnam War and consistently, consistently until almost the very end, a majority of young people at that time supported the war. But if you were to say what imprinted my generation, the boomers, it was not the people who sat at home and said, yeah, the, the, the survey guy said, yeah, I support that. It was the people who went out to the streets and made a noise, made a noise. And there were many. Let me tell you, I here I was here in Washington and I would participate in one or two. And you could see we were all nonconformists. I remember uh, standing in this ocean of blue jeans. We all, my my, my uh, now wife, who was then uh, my, my girlfriend, said, look at us. We're all identically dressed. <laughs> right? millions, <laughs> we're, we're all nonconformists now. <laughs> millions of nonconformists all wearing blue jeans. All right? There was a, maybe a million in that, in that particular one. Uh, and that's what defined my generation. It defined who we are. Uh, the people who were uh, had the, the poll numbers are forgotten today. And I think, yeah, I, th- I think there is a difference between what people feel and think and what the events of the day are. And I think what I'm talking about is events. And uh, sometimes the events fly in the face of even the reality. There's a whole lot of talk, for example, about how globalization is is driving uh, a lot of this discontent and basically elected Trump. I mean, look at our unemployment numbers. They're wonderful unemployment numbers. I, I have lived through much worse. You look at education numbers. You look at life expectancy at every group, every group. Uh, and the ones improving the most tend to be the, the ones at the bottom or, or the ones that have been marginalized. So if you wanted to say this is the best of all possible worlds, you could say that. But nobody's saying that. Nobody is saying that. They say the opposite. It's the worst. And they are basically out in the streets and they have seized the, um, the stage. So I think the age is going to be defined not by the good economic numbers, but by the people who are saying we don't like what's going on. I guess one one synthesis would be that you know the median person might feel pretty similarly, but like the people who are influencing the perceptions are the you know, five or fifteen percent who are like most dissatisfied and most vocal, and and, and their attitudes have shifted quite a bit. Yeah, yeah. and their I ability mean, to communicate has changed quite a lot. Yes, I think that the number of people who can participate has changed dramatically. The way that they can participate has changed dramatically, and eventually the Clay Shirky self assembly. Uh, you can you can push a, a button on your laptop and the next day you are one of tens of thousands demonstrating the people you have never met before. OK, how could that have been possible uh, 30, 35 years ago? It could not have been. Uh, today is a, is a pretty common occurrence. Yeah. So I'm curious to know, uh, what evidence uh, do you think would refute your view or maybe what, what are the best arguments you could come up with if you were trying to challenge the perspective that you're that you're proposing? Well, I mean, if you had uh, a respect, a public respect for the institutions that that uh, run our lives or, or that frame our lives, if you within the institutions themselves had that sort of, I don't know what to call it, but a sense of sporting fair play where you are no longer a resistance, really, you are uh, the loyal opposition, for example, if the pitch of our politics were not so apocalyptic, were more institutional, more uh, policy-driven, more like it used to be, um, and if 
whenever the president spoke, uh, that there would tend to be kind of a gathering behind him and saying, well, okay, let's listen to what he's got to say. All these things, when the, when all these things begin to happen, you will know that my thesis was completely false, okay? Uh, unfortunately, I don't see that happening anytime soon, but yes, the industrial world had a moment, and it was a moment where hundreds of millions of people basically entered history. So it was not like you could say it was an anti-democratic moment. It just was dem democracy at, at, at a very different model than what we have today. Uh, and that has l lasted in some form uh, unto this day. But our social model is a lot flatter. So we can get a date at the click of a button. I wish I were a young man today. You know, I mean, it, it, it's a lot easier than it used to be. Uh, you can buy a car at the click of a button. But if you want a passport, you got to take weeks. If you want a building permit, you probably have to wait years, okay? And, and you know, if you go to an ER room, it takes you a day to, to get looked at, you know? So the institutions seem to be moving at a different pace of response than uh, the public is used to in its social and commercial existence. And that, that social and commercial existence, I think, has created certain expectations of government that may well be utopian. I don't know. It probably are. But they, they are there. I expect the government to treat me the way that Amazon does, which when I want something, they give me, oh, yeah, you like that? Here's something else you might like, okay? And not like take a line and go to the, go to the metal detector and take off your hat and salute me you know, knuckle your forehead at me. Salute me and, and wait your turn. We're not used to that. But that was the industrial way of being. The, the people at the top got respect. The people below them got respect by the people below. And those of us who were at the very bottom then respected everybody and accepted what they said. And it worked in, 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 as long as they could maintain the, the, basically command the conversation. They had the information available to us came from them. Are there any countries that you find kind of hard to hard to fit into your theory where you're like, oh, maybe this is kind of a counterexample or, you know, maybe there's there's obviously other dynamics going on. And this is an example of something that's like not not what I would have predicted. Less that than China. I just wish I knew more about what's going on in there because China has a gigantic online, just probably the largest online presence in the world. Very active, very clever. Uh, there are um, all kinds of clever ways in which they get around all their uh, limitations, but also a whole lot of self-censorship, a whole lot of probably thinking that the government that they have, while pretty terrible in some ways, has made prosperity possible and not wanting to play with that. I don't know. China is one that perplexes me a little bit. Uh, I, and I'd like to think it's because there's not enough knowledge. Certainly, I don't have enough knowledge, and I've, I've looked somewhat. I'm not a Chinese expert, though, and I can't read the language. So what? keep an eye on China. It, it strikes me as a kind of an anomaly in some ways. Yeah. I guess uh, one country that I feel is a little bit in tension with with the model you're putting forward is um is is, is actually Spain, which you talk about a, a whole bunch. So I feel like there was a lot of street protests, a lot of anger, but the magnitude of the recession that they had and its persistence was was incredible. I, like unemployment, there peaked at twenty six percent. Like youth unemployment was approaching fifty percent, and so it was. It seems like not too surprising that there would be you know some some outcry uh, there. And yet it seemed to kind of die away and like, you know, politics, that policy and politics there in overall seems to have remained remarkably sensible. We currently, you know, still have a center right party in, in, in place. Uh, given given the magnitude of what people went through there, it's kind of surprising that there almost wasn't wasn't a larger revolutionary change or there wasn't wasn't, <coughs> wasn't more dissatisfaction. And and even I think there was there was two um, two big new parties that that appeared, I think, Podemos and Ciudadanos. Yes. Um, yes, and to be honest, both—I mean, I guess I'm, I'm certainly no, no Spain expert—but they both seem kind of like sensible parties to me. Like certainly within the realm of uh, 
you know, normal opinion. So I'm kind of curious to know, yeah, do, do you think that like Spain maybe isn't like the, the archetypal case? Well, I did a lot of research on Spain. Um, number one, a lot of those numbers were on a very high base. There was always a lot of youth unemployment in Spain, way higher than anywhere else in, in, in the, the EU. Number two, uh, the protests happened in 2011. That was three years after the crisis. Number three, I mean, I've been in Spain since. It, I mean, it looks pretty damn prosperous to me. Uh, I, that could be a superficial impression, but uh, the, the statistics are it's back to where it was before uh, 2008. My sense of the indignados was that 2008 per, was part of it, but was not a leading part. The, the, the political system that they had, which as I, you know, my interpretation of it in the book is that this was very fragmented uh, with, with a lot of local authority and then a lot of EU authority in terms of, you know, the, the currency. So the, the central government actually was squeezed from the top and from the bottom. And so the two main parties, the socialists and the, the conservatives, had to more or less agree on the big picture. And they did. They disagreed about social policy and whether to be in the Iraq war, but mainly they agreed about the EU, they agreed about the Euro, they agreed about capitalism, they agreed about democracy. And and to the people who took to the streets in 2011, that looked like collusion. That looked like these people basically are profiting, that there's no difference, and there really was very little between one group or another. Um, there is no listening to us and to our pain. And there was some economic pain, no question about that. But there was, I felt, I always feel in these in these um, movements that hit the street, there is a sense of listen to us. I mean, you see that really strongly in uh, the, the Yellow Vest. But I think the indignados were, were probably the, the most that had the sense of nobody claims to represent us actually does. You know, it's a, one of their mottos was, you don't represent me. I mean, that was, the, you may be my representative, but you don't represent me. Um, and I am, uh, I am not anti-system. They, they were full of clever slogans. I am not anti-system. The system is anti-me, they said. There was a sense that nobody was listening to them. There was that sense of distance and failure at the top. And I think that was a bigger motivator. I think that 2008 was part of the failure. Uh, no question about that. But I don't think that was the, the, the main driver. I mean, you would have expected the trouble to have started in 2008, 2009. It took three years. And it started with a with a flash, and it ended with a dribble, as these things tend to. I guess another point you make is that it's perhaps surprising that uh, people who were participating in the protests, who were like relatively well off by Spanish standards, were, were not more appreciative of the enormous progress that Spain had made over the like forty years since Franco fell in nineteen seventy five. Um, that like Spain had actually really pushed ahead, become like quite a wealthy country. I think one of the longest lived in the world. So uh, yeah, yeah. And, I mean, in two thousand and eleven, the average person in Spain, they're a young person in Spain, uh, was better off and had more freedom and was had more social openness than I would say any previous time in their history. They were a privileged generation. Yeah, they've been hit on the job by 2008 and unemployment was not what it should have been and there was a housing issue. So it, it, it was not a perfect world, but you had people, as I show in the book, saying, um, you know, some of these indignados saying, well, my, our parents, uh, they thought they were happy just because they could uh, vote for a, for a government. We're of the first generation that, that isn't grateful for that. And you go, well, what, where are you going with this, right? Where would you be going? If you're not grateful for voting for a, a democratic government, what is it exactly that, that you would put in its place? And of course, they never attempted to, uh, even remotely attempted 
to discuss that. Yeah, so uh, Tyler Cohen wanted me to ask, uh, so are people also more disillusioned now with like sports heroes and, and, and actors? Because um, that seems like your, uh, your theory would also predict that, that it wouldn't just be disillusioned with like uh, politics, but also just with kind of all, 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 uh, all prominent figures. Uh, and uh, yeah, is that the case? And, and, and if not, uh, why not? I, that's a hard thing to measure. I'll, I'll give you a very speculative answer, um, but I actually believe this, and I probably I believe that if I could research it, I could prove it. Probably, I think part of the ethos of this this public that tends to build around certain events is a a very very profound cynicism that goes uh, with the anger. Okay, is always assuming the worst of your opponent. That is, as you know the internet mode, right? I mean, there is no internet discussion about politics that's halfway salient that doesn't end with somebody threatening somebody's life, okay? I mean, it's just amazing how that happens. So I would say that we look for those things that in, 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 the, in the people who are rich and famous, which demean them, bring them down to our level. Formerly, people were very different. As I said before, we used to talk about George Washington being you know, honest and so forth. Watch two movies. So it's not just actors and not, not just uh, sports figures, which of course today we know way too much about them. In the old days, we knew hardly anything. And so we could fantasize. Today, part of the information tsunami is these people are out there almost usually literally naked to the world. Okay. So watch two movies in succession. I, I did this at one point. One is called Young Edison and it is Mickey Rooney, of all people, I don't even know who, if you know who he is, but he was very well known in his day, a little guy. Uh, he was very young then, and he played the young Tom Edison. And it was essentially this guy, who, little guy who came from nowhere and persevered, and uh, it ends with still his being young, so he's not famous yet, but you can tell he's going to be famous because he's got these wonderful qualities in him, right? Then after that, watch The Social Network, which is almost the exact same story. This guy from nowhere goes to Harvard, comes up with this thing, and suddenly he's a billionaire, right? Except he becomes a billionaire by being a jerk, all right? Now, you might want to say whatever you want about the qualities, the actual personal qualities of Edison versus uh, Zuckerberg. But what we're looking for, what we look for is he's a jerk. He's just, he's no better than I am. What people were looking for back in the, in the I think it was the 30s, maybe the 40s, when that movie was made of Edison was, Somebody to admire, somebody to look up to, somebody who had qualities that were, you know, I could model myself on. And I think today we, um, as part of the internet culture, which is everything ends in a death threat, we tend to to be very cynical and, and yeah, uh, we know too much and we're too cynical, I would say. It's yeah. a long answer, but but I, and I can't prove it, but I bet you if I, I researched that, I could. Okay, so one difference is that sports heroes don't exercise authority over people to the same degree, so there's perhaps less less need to less need to resent them. Yeah, another another question that Tyler has was he pointed out that Ethiopia and I guess some other countries as well banned the internet in a lot of their in most of the countries like outside of the capital city for quite a long time, and that that's a policy that was recently changed. But yeah, what do you think? Was there certain was there a certain wisdom to this, at least from some people's perspectives? <laughs> well, if you want to if you want to uh, hold on to power, maybe I don't know. Hosni Mubarak to go back to Egypt, uh, of course, in his moment of of panic, uh, switched off the internet. It was too late for him there. In the book, I make it pretty clear that although there's a certain usefulness in talking about old media and new media and the internet and uh, you know newspapers or whatever, in fact, what we what we're exposed to it, what that tsunami is, is 
all those things together. It's the, what I call the information sphere. And the information sphere, you have to be at North Korea levels of control to keep out. I mean, even the Cubans can't keep it out anymore. I don't know Ethiopia. Um, I can't tell whether they are at those levels of either underdevelopment or political repression. But I can guarantee you that if somebody has a dish in Ethiopia, they can get a lot of information and it's, uh, and it's not going to stay in, in one place. So the Internet is one thing. The information sphere is another. It is, the information sphere is very redundant. It's beyond the power of any government to uh, keep out unless you want to impose North Korea levels of repression. All right. So the idea of keeping out the Internet, uh, I think I wrote you an email um, when I was posted to Paraguay for, with the U.S. government, I arrived there and the Senate, the Paraguayan Senate was debating very uh, furiously whether the Internet was a good thing or a bad thing. All right. And I mean, to an outsider like me, that was astounding. Uh, Paraguay at that time, probably to some extent even now, was a very isolated country, not very well off. There were not any public libraries there. There were uh, very few bookstores. Uh, little newspapers were not of, of tremendously high quality. Information was hard to get at. And suddenly you had the possibility of opening this immense world, access to every Paraguayan citizen who could afford a connection to the world of information that they had, had been denied to them before. Why would you not do it? And that was one of the first moments where it clicked in my head, oh wait, these are not the people who would have access. These are the people who are in charge of the government. And they're asking themselves, what's gonna happen if we say, yes, you can have all this information? And I thought that was kind of an interesting insight. They did do the right thing and allow internet. So I had internet the two years I was there. Uh, but the fact that they, they they debated it pretty furiously, I thought was very interesting. So in, in the book, you make an impressive effort to be descriptive rather than normative, to not not to try to actually just like understand what's happening before you pass judgment on it. But Chris, like, do you think overall we're, we're better off for these changes? And like, uh, what are some of the places we've we've gained? I had a uh, an aunt who always said she wanted to live in the Middle Ages, and she was very unhappy with the modern world. All right, I never understood people like that. I think uh, all the changes. I mean, when you add them all up, it's hard to say good or bad, but the wonderfulness of what has changed, the ability to communicate across the world. Um, you and I are doing so right now in a way that would have just completely freaked me out you know, 10, 15 years ago, okay? Uh, the amounts of uh, information about places that are not necessarily salient to important people or to important media. You can access information about anywhere in the world. The communications, four billion people got on an airplane uh, in the year 2017 and flew somewhere. I mean, that is not the way things used to be. Only rich people were able to afford that in the old days. So no, I think good or bad, I mean, you have to at the end make a judgment. If you want a personal judgment from me, I think I wouldn't go back. I wouldn't turn the dial back one one second. I think this is all, we have to learn how to deal with this. We have to learn how to live in the world that we have created. And the book, I hope, describes that world very crisply and provides a few hints as to how we can live that way without tearing each other apart in, in, a, in a fairly pointless manner, I think. 
So I want to spend a bit of time now thinking about what, what implications this has for our listeners who um, overwhelmingly are interested in you know, using their career and their lives to, to improve yes. the world. So it seems like what, one obvious implication that occurred to me is that it seems like this is a, this is a glorious time if uh, what you want to do is try to stop things from happening. That it's like maybe hard to put forward a constructive agenda. But if, if you're interested in influencing politics to just like prevent something, then it's like easy to corral people to like to negate things. And perhaps there's like some, you know, really good opportunities here that it's like there's bad things that are happening and you can like go in and like start a movement to, to stop them much more easily than before. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I think as a statement of fact, uh, I think that's correct. I, I would just be a contrarian there and, and say, I, I actually think what's needed is the opposite of that. Um, I think what's needed, and I think people who are just now starting on their career have a chance to do, if they want to adapt our institutions to the actual world we're living in, is learn to talk in a language that can't be falsified almost immediately. Learn to talk in careful terms of, we think we can do this, or we hope we can do this. We can try this, or then we can try that. It's all very unglamorous, very unglamorous. If you can say, my gosh, I've got the ultimate solution, or I'm so against you that I'm going to lead the, you know, a demonstration of a million people, and I'm going to eliminate this tax or whatever, that's a lot more glamorous. But in, that's not what we need. That's, that's happening right now. And in the end, uh, it leads to at that end, it leads to, to nihilism. Yeah. So, I mean, I think a lot of listeners will be involved in kind of the, the, the policy conversation. Many of them may go into politics themselves. And, and I think you say in the book, uh, the reformers of democracy must learn to say out loud for all to, all to hear, this is a process of trial and error. Um, and we're uncertain about the consequences. And even I was wrong, which is like very difficult for politicians to, to, to do these days. It's um, impossible. Yeah. Very, yeah. I guess... How 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 can we like get to a point where people view uh, you know uh, the, the system and and politicians as as legitimate and and respectable given just the competitive pressures against being honest about the limits of your of your power and knowledge uh, that they they currently make it so hard to say those things. Well, if you think of your uh, politicians of, of the elites as being an entirely different species from yourself, then almost everything they do you can dismiss and say, well, this this. That's them. This is not me. What we need, obviously, is for elites to behave the way they behaved before they became elites. Uh, what we need for them is to be for the public and the elites to feel like they belong to the same tribe. For that, the people that are part of your audience, who hopefully many of them will become elites, need to rehearse their humility. Humility is a hard art to, to learn. I have always found that. I found that the older I get, the more humble I become, I was. I knew everything when I was about 30, and I know nothing right now. Okay, I, mean, I, I, I basically can support some arguments, but I feel like there is so much uh, that is perplexing, and so we can't stop life to figure everything out. We life is not a laboratory; it's, it, it has to be addressed as it is, and therefore there's a lot of ignorance built into every decision that gets made. That gets washed out out of the discussion somehow. The rhetoric is, is certain. The reality is uncertain. Well, I think if we start to bring some of that, which is really more of a scientific approach, uh, so the humility and uncertainty to political discourse, you will find fewer people will say, well, you promised us this and you completely failed. Uh, you said that you could do it, but you couldn't. Um, you promised this gigantic thing and instead you gave us a mess. This seems to happen all the time. That change is a generational th change, number one, and it's an institutional change. I honestly think 
the elites we have in charge right now are not capable of doing it. I mean, when you look at their behavior and you go, these guys like it the way it is. They, they, they like the, the, uh, the metal detecting machines. They, they like the bodyguards. They like the limos. Uh, that, that's what being an elite is all about for them. But that, that puts them at another species from the public. We need people for whom all of that is not necessary and who, who go back to being what, I mean, let's face it, uh, th- it wasn't that long ago that go- going into government meant you know, serving uh, national interests, serving some particular ideology, some particular set of beliefs. Uh, you're hard pressed to understand what the beliefs of, um, other than just kind of stamped out, you know, right, left, conservative, liberal, uh, what the beliefs are of these people that are in front of uh, in front of our cameras all the time. They basically uh, they, they consume the conversation, the political conversation. So uh, I would say, if you're young, the easy path is what you said. You know, there was a a Charlie Chaplin movie where uh, a truck with a red flag at the end drops a red flag, and he's he runs up to the truck showing it, and, and then he turns a corner in the, like a Charlie Chaplin movie. And suddenly, there's like a million people behind him that were in some kind of demonstration, and he's waving the red flag. And so he looks like he's a, some kind of radical leader waving his red flag, you know. But that's very easy to do. Basically, if you want to be against, you can wave your red flag, and you can and you can probably get an audience. I think the hard thing to do, the courageous thing to do, is to look in the eye what we really know and and what we can really say. If you're proposing certain uh, policy changes or, or directions, uh, what you can say, and you can say, well, I think, I believe, but these are the possibilities. Assume that the public is as intelligent as you are. That is an assumption that, that is never made, okay? Uh, or rarely made. And be humble in what you propose. Phrase it in such a way that it doesn't sound like you have a mathematical solution what is really a human condition. Yeah, okay. so it sounds like you're saying if people, if listeners want to go into politics, they should try to be like really authentically kind of an ordinary person who talks to like voters all the time and isn't isn't a world apart. And they speak they speak the language of voters and and, and they don't view themselves as, as as better than everyone else. That that's like a path that's like both likely to be healthier for democracy and also potentially successful for them. And 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 then might give them the they might give them the discretion to be able to say things like I don't I don't honestly know the answer to this. Uh, whereas currently, I guess elites are just expected to to promise the world. I mean, if you look at uh, how authority works online versus how authority works in the industrial model, it's very different. The industrial model, you get it. And once you get it, you have it, right? You're at the top of some hierarchy and you have this authority and it's kind of given to you because of who you are. Online, it's every day. So if you have a person you look online that, that connects you to stuff that you find interesting, if he has a bad week, you're not looking at that guy anymore. If he gives you bad links that you don't like, so every day you have to say, you have to earn what it. is it? Yeah, you have to earn it every day. I think our politicians are going to have to uh, learn that lesson. We are now in that kind of digital world where you have to earn it. And uh, yeah, I think the young, the young in particular, will, will play a big role in this because it's my sense of it is if there's a model for the elites of the generation in charge right now, uh, and some of those are boomers, many of them are Gen Xers, it's Harvey Weinstein. It's a guy like that, a person who... Um, basically is self-inflated with uh, feelings of how virtuous he is. He is. Well, he's doing horrible things in secret. Uh, and everybody knew it. Everybody knew he was doing this. And nobody said a thing. That kind of confirms all the conspiracy theorists that there is all this horrible uh, corruption at the top and that they all are kind of protecting each other. I think there probably is a little bit of truth to that. But 
that image has got to be overtaken by a no i'm not i'm not some big mogul i'm not a big powerful politician i'm a citizen like everybody else who happens to be serving the public yeah are there any countries or parties or people who you think are uh, you know pushing things forward and uh, you know finding finding good ways to make politics work in in, in this new era well, I mean, I think I, I, public, I, I pointed to Estonia. It's probably an unfair thing to do to the poor Estonians because they're such a small country. Uh, but Estonia has digitized to a pretty astounding their politics and, and their <clears throat> their public life to a pretty astounding degree. For example, every Estonian citizen owns his own public information. Everything that is known, there's one set part of what drives people crazy that whatever institution you go to, they ask you the same questions over and over again. You give all this information, they keep their set and the next institution will be different. So if it's state or if it's local or if it's government or is this side of the government or that side of the government, you have to be put through this who are you and why should I care process. In Estonia, you have one set of information. You can do any number of things, uh, including voting uh, online. It is a country of about a million people. So you could probably do that. Uh, I live in Fairfax County, Virginia, and that's got a population of about 1.2 million. So you could probably do that in Fairfax County, Virginia. Whether Virginia itself could do it is a question. The United States, I've sat in the bureaucracy of the United States government. It's just, you have no idea how the digital structure is alien to it. It just doesn't know what to do with it. It simply, it, it looks at it and it wants to be. It's not even like it's repelled by it. it, it, it we, we have to be just like the private sector. We have to be just like Google. And, and they just kind of smash into a wall trying to do it. They have no idea what they're doing. So start small. Start at the, at the local level, maybe the state level for some of the smaller states. You can get closer to that social and commercial reality in your political reality. Uh, and I think Estonia has done that some some uh, degree. So at eighty thousand hours and in effective altruism in general, we're we're very concerned about the long term future of humanity, which means that we care about you know, potential catastrophes like war between the U.S. and China, or you know a nuclear war, whether accidental or deliberate. Um, I guess also we're concerned about you know a bad, really bad political outcomes like some kind of ongoing dictatorship. How, how do you feel like the revolt of the public? Like does does it make those things more likely or or, or less likely? It's a tough question, but. Yeah, this is totally speculative, but okay, I'll, I'll, I'll tackle it because I think the book addresses it to some extent. In the old democracies, and then you can make a different case for newer democracies like Turkey or Venezuela and so forth. But in the old democracies, I would say um, the revolt of the public makes authoritarianism almost impossible. Uh, what you have is uh, the opposite. You have uh, state organizations, state institutions weakened to a great degree, disintegrating to a great degree, even literally so in some countries like Britain, where the Scot the Scotland wants to break off, and um, in Spain, the, the Catalans want to break off. But even within the mainstream country, there is a fragmentation of politics. You mentioned Spain. Spain used to be basically bipolar, like we are. You know, Democrats, Republicans, they had socialists and conservatives. Now, after every election, there's a pause of months sometimes trying to figure out who the heck gets a government. Nobody knows. There's so many parties, right? So the idea of an authoritarian government uh, is to me very unlikely. What I worry about is that nihilism. And if you want to see the most extreme version of nihilism and power, look at ISIS. I mean, people who basically were there because they, they were in revolt against the modern world as it appeared to them. But these were very modern people. These were not primitive people. These were um, a lot of young people who are very internet savvy. 
uh, and uh, many of them highly educated, but they hated history. There's a, a pervasive thread throughout the revolt of the public is a, a, a looking at history not as a store of lessons or a store of memories that the human race has accumulated, but as uh, basically uh, the origin of all bad things, the origin of repression, the origins of defeat, the origins of uh, lack of, of uh, authenticity. Um, and if you're ISIS, you're out to basically eradicate history. And you do that by basically killing a lot of people. You have very little in the way of a positive program, very little in the way of an ideology, hardly any organization. They had a caliph, al-Baghdadi. His speeches are very enlightening because they're just rants about history. But they hardly had an organization. They were just there to bash, to bash at the world as it is today. And many, many hundreds of thousands of people have died in, 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 that, in that circumstance. So you want to worry about something that the revolts of the public may trigger. It is that. And we get that. Uh, in little, we get the person who has, you have the internet ranter who does the death threat. And at a certain point, that person crosses over from the virtual to the real, picks up a gun. And for no particular reason, even though he may have some little ideological reason, but for no particular reason, starts shooting innocent people and killing them. Um, so the risk yeah. is the risk is more chaos than totalitarianism. Yeah, that is my fear. Yeah, do you have any particular view on like what what this is going to do to international relations? Will it make it harder for countries to cooperate and, and avoid conflict? Now that's a good question. I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I think honestly, I think what it's got to do is is create a uh, an inward, much more of an inward looking. I think international relations are going to become far less important than they have been since World War II, uh, and certainly since um, the end of, of the Cold War. I think you can see it now. Countries are turning inward. Uh, th there's this kind of a people score points off of each other for inward politics. That's what you have now is everybody's internal politics and their foreign politics are part of the same. So Macron gets to give a speech uh, about how nationalism is, is not patriotism in front of Trump who had just said he was a nationalist. And then when the demonstrations hit the street in Paris, Trump is gloating about it on his, on his uh, Twitter stream. Uh, so each is trying to basically pose to his domestic audience by taking the stand uh, in the foreign policy. I think we're going to probably be just off the cuff. I haven't thought about it all that much, but I think it's probably going to be a much more inward, much less outward oriented world until we work out how to survive the new digital age uh, in terms of our politics. Yeah, so uh, you're a busy guy. We've, we've been talking for a while, so, so I've got to, got to let you go in a minute. Uh, but perhaps just to wrap up, would you like to kind of paint a vision for like how the, how the future could go well and maybe you know, give a bit of a call to arms for, for listeners to, to contribute to it? Uh, I think, as I say, many of the individuals involved in a lot of these uh, circumstances are, are, are not only good and, and dedicated and brave, but, but noble individuals. I think... The change in, in a strange way is in a way it seems to be very simple, and that's usually the hardest thing to do, which is in looking at the other side of, the, of this great divide of the public and the elites and seeing humanity on the other side and seeing, you know, validity on the other side. Because until that happens, it's going to be very hard to, number one, avoid these eruptions from below, and number two, avoid these populists 
who basically straddle the divide and appeal to one side or the other. So yeah, I think that change can happen. Like I said, it's a generational change. I think if you can lo- you know, flatten the pyramid the way that Estonia has done, structurally flatten the pyramid, I think you could have a, a new generation of elites who are conscious of being citizens, conscious of being just ordinary people who happen to have achieved an extraordinary end and who treat the rest of us in a way that we find, yeah, this guy could be my next door neighbor, only he's the president or he's my senator. I mean, our politicians used to be very good at this. I don't know what's happened. They basically, the politicians have run a circle around each other and they seem to want to impress each other more than they want to appeal to the public. So this is not a hard thing to do. This generation of elites seem to have lost the knack. So it's going to be younger people. And so then at that point, you open up the possibility of having this digital expansion of government where you can flatten. You can, for example, you can pull the public about their opinions about any number of policy issues before you pass a law. You can post laws online in different versions and have the public comment on them. If it doesn't end on death threats, and if it doesn't end on the kind of uh, polarized, extreme, violent language that, that, that it does today, you have flattened the government to a place where it is far closer to, to the people. And there is no reason why that can't happen. That will be, alas, Rob, your generation's burden. The book is The Revolt of the Public and the Crisis of Authority in the New Millennium. And my guest today has been Martin Guri. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast, Martin. It's been fun. All right, so I've got uh, Kieran and Michelle, my, my colleagues here, uh, to share their reactions to the to the episode. Did you have any any, any strong views about it? Okay, so my first uh, impression of this episode was that I thought, well, my main criticism was, which I've already said to Rob, but I thought that an alternative timeline Rob that had never heard of EA could have recorded this episode. He could have given most of the pushback. So when Rob's asking about different examples about Spain and Canada and China, I felt like it was never actually tied to our questions. And I'm biased about this because I wrote most of the EA-related questions. But I felt like I always wanted it to be tied back into, well, how does this actually relate to us? What are the implications for us? We had a section going into this. What are the implications for do-gooders? And, you know, if we accept Guri's thesis about creating this new elite class, well, is that going to be us? And if it's us, what are we going to do about it? So should we be thinking in terms of positioning ourselves as becoming intellectual elites or without actually put people off to the point where we couldn't actually achieve any of our political goals? Yeah. You're meant to be critiquing Martin Guri here, Kieran, not, not critiquing my, my performance. <laughs> no, I, but, I'm but only, I'll take it. I mainly, mainly view this as a critique of you. I mean, this is... <laughs> Finally, you get your chance to air your grievances yeah, this is really... on the show. Yeah, I think uh, it's a good point. Um, I guess I, I was very interested in like, like digging down into whether this is a persuasive story, whether this is, is actually the right model for thinking about things. Uh, because like I, I read the book twice preparing for the interview and it's like influenced how I see all of these things. I'm now like starting to apply this model whenever I notice people complaining about yeah how, how the country is being governed and taken to the streets. And I worry that maybe it's it's too much that I'm like giving too much weight to this to this particular uh, way of seeing things because it's not... Uh, it, I, I'm worried that it's too easy to create a narrative like this, to, to create a story that explains things uh, when you're when you're able to like el- to, to elaborate on it a lot. Um, and um, unless you actually look for like all of the cases where like the model fits the the data in in, in a particular country, but you also look for all of the cases where the where the model doesn't fit the data that you're seeing and try to see how how strong is actually the fit. 
then um, you can just end up, it, it's like, it's too easy to spin all of these stories, like uh, yeah, any story and it could be right or wrong, but it's going to sound kind of compelling. So yeah, that, that's, a, that's, I guess why I was pushing, pushing back on that. So you mentioned that you found this quite persuasive uh, in changing your views. What aspects of his argument did you find the most persuasive? I guess the description of how these like nihilistic or like protest movements seem to be operating internally, like what drives the people and how they're coordinating, it does seem to to fit that data relatively well. And also kind of the mystery of why is it that we're seeing these particular protest movements that we didn't before at a time when things seem to be going fairly well. It provides an alternative explanation for why you see so much discontent that doesn't uh, require you to say, well, uh, conditions are objectively worse than they used to be, which they don't seem to be. So how troubled are you by the fact that we don't see similar movements in, as you said in the podcast, in Canada and Australia? Yeah, it's definitely uh, not great for the theory. Uh, I suppose it would be more compelling if you were seeing this uh, like in, in more places where where things were going fine. I guess Martin's approach is to say, well, maybe they maybe they will in future. This like creates the the possibility of these protest movements taking off, but it doesn't necessarily say that they will in in every particular case. Uh, you need like a spark, and it's perhaps a, a somewhat chaotic, chancy event. Another synthesis that I thought of after the episode was that. In most other ways, the world seems to be becoming more stable uh, and more boring. As people get older, like, conditions become more pleasant, so people are less likely to, to revolt. And so you might think that uh, all else equal, uh, the world would have become more boring. There'll be fewer protest movements, like less, less instability in politics. Um, and I guess Martin's uh, model potentially explains like, why it hasn't gone to zero, uh, even, even in these like, relatively wealthy countries. And it's explaining kind of what's left. Like, in as much as we do have protest movements, this is kind of the nature of them. That they're based on, uh, yeah, people feeling uh, totally unimpressed with, with with their leaders because they've got access to more information. So, all things considered, if you looked at the entire model, you might not say it's going to cause an increase in the total number of of protests uh, every, everywhere in the world. But this will explain like the ones that that are left. I thought the timing question was something that you didn't touch on that seemed kind of interesting to me and might somewhat answer the question of why aren't we seeing these in Canada and Australia? Because it seemed like. A lot of the changes he was talking about happened in the early 2000s, but then all the protest movements actually were in uh, 2011. So it seemed like it took a while for this actually to happen. And I guess the thing I'd been assuming was going on there was something more like this created the conditions where this might happen. And he seemed really clear that he wanted to say uh, this is just creating the conditions rather than actually being causal, in which case you might think that they kind of set each other off, you know, seems pretty clear in the case of the Arab Spring that like one of them happened that's what led to other ones and so you might just think that well it took quite a few years from these changes in the early 2000s for this to actually happen and these things are going to happen as well in other countries and it's not something you should expect to happen you know at a really frequent pace and maybe it superficially looks like you'd expect it to happen at a quick pace, but actually that's just because several of these set each other off. And then maybe we should expect another spate of them, but not for like 10 years or something. Yeah, I guess I guess that sounds right. Um, I suppose on, on the question of timing, it's hard to know exactly what this model should predict in saying like, when should we see this uptick in, in uh, discontent? Because it's kind of been a somewhat, con- well, continuous exponential growth in the like number of different information sources that people have access to such that there's not really like a sudden like one year where suddenly like the internet was switched on and everyone had access to everything but before they didn't it's like just more and more people getting online and like cable news came before that which was like fewer sources of information but like still potentially a big increase on what people had access to before so that makes it a bit harder to kind of get a great identification condition (laughs) as as a statistician might think because it's just well one of these things is going up the other one 
uh, is like also potentially just changing continuously, but it could be like many things that are, that, that, are, that are driving that, which isn't to say that the theory is wrong at all. It just means that it's like going to be harder to definitely attribute yeah, changes in one thing to changes in another. So getting back to the implications for us, let's assuming that the thesis was correct. So I pulled out a key quote. Guri said, assume that the public is as intelligent as you are. That is an assumption that is never made or rarely made. Guri talks throughout the episode about this new class of elite, this legitimate class rising up. And we we're trying to get into what that actually meant, which I think was a bit blurry. Uh, but if it did look something like us, if it was that we were taking positions of power or people like us, how do we actually deal with these questions that are posed? Like, would a public revolt against us in the same ways if we used tactics that we thought would work today? Or do we actually try and build a framework where we can be honest and we can say, yes, we actually do think we have better information. We think we do have an answer to this question. So I suppose the the, the Trump phenomenon makes me wonder whether uh, people might enjoy it as like an interesting break from like from the way that politicians usually ad- usually address people. It seems like you can get away with like a lot more like interesting yeah. and like insulting messages. And as long as you seem like an authentic person and you're owning the whole thing and not seeming right. like fake. Yeah. And it's... I. I don't know whether we've seen many people people try that approach. Yeah, do we really have any like authentic like technocrats or something who go out and like they're a technocrat of the people or something like that? I suppose, no, you know, I mean I suppose the closest well, might to... I mean the closest might be Macron in getting elected. Okay, yeah, um, but still not quite. I mean, you don't get the impression that he's no. really being himself. Uh, yeah, so... you don't don't get the impression that he like heads down to the pub either to like. No, exactly. Yeah. yeah. But again, if that's if he doesn't head down to the pub, then being authentic is to yeah. admit that, is to say, I don't head down to the pub, but yeah. that's actually okay. And maybe in a leader, you don't want that. Yeah. And maybe that kind of just being blatantly honest, embracing who you actually are, is that a positive to be genuinely authentic or is it always this game where you're trying to appear authentic? Yeah, I guess... I think I think it would be worth more people trying the the, the authentic route, uh, if only because it seems like that's something that the, that the public is hankering for. And there's enough randomness in this entire process that like, act, and it's also so much uh, better as a politician, so much uh, nicer when you get elected to actually be able to be yourself and to actually state your your real opinions rather than constantly uh, putting on a putting on a facade. That's a really that, good, really good point. Yeah, it's like mean, in as much as it like it only lowers your chances of getting elected like more moderately, but then you can actually be be more sincere, and you don't have to be yeah, acting and uh, like thinking like double thinking about it everything that you're saying all the time maybe it's just like worth more people taking that shot i think that would also potentially create better long-term incentives for people to go into politics because at the moment we have this issue where most people within politics are not who we would think of as our best and brightest i mean it's the the most talented young people tend to go into other professions if you had the opportunity to go into politics and really be yourself and you didn't have this impression that you had to play a game it was really just going in and representing people and doing you know doing the best for them within your own framework of what you think is actually best and being authentic i think it might be quite appealing maybe i can imagine it being more pressure filled as well because you might think that right now you aren't going to have to open up your full self to the whole world whereas i'd imagine you just feel hugely vulnerable if you mm. were trying to actually show your entire self to everyone in the whole country do you have views for how this thesis again if we accepted it would impact our career advice for people who wanted to go into government i suppose uh there's an obvious sense in which it suggests that people shouldn't uh shouldn't go into government as much Mm. because uh in as much as like listeners to the show are like very unrepresentative of the general public and like in in their policy preferences or style then uh 
they're contributing to this problem of the government like not not being seen as legitimate, not being seen as representative, um, or at least the people should make more compromises between like their ideal policies, which the same might be focused on helping foreigners who are non-voters uh, versus like yeah uh, voters in or constituents in a in a particular area. Although that would go against his dream of having this new elite class rise up and be authentic. Yeah, it just seems tricky. Let's say that your like main policy priority was improving foreign aid. Uh, yeah. It just seems very hard to get elected on a on a platform that's like mostly focused on helping people who don't who can't vote. Um, and so that's that's like one reason that because we're focused on helping groups that are so disadvantaged that they don't have any say in the political system, like farmed animals or yeah foreigners or people who don't exist yet. That's like one way where. It's very hard to go out and build like a popular movement around around these causes. That's like kind of an underlying challenge. I suppose uh, we, we could compromise on that and say, well, no, we actually are going to focus on things that help uh, help voters and uh, yeah, like yeah, current day voters because that will allow us to be more in touch and like and not contribute to this problem as as severely. Uh, but it might just be outweighed by outweighed by other factors. I guess my feeling is that he indicates that now is a particularly non-tractable time to go into politics because you have these kind of two groups of stakeholders where you have the existing elites for whom you have to talk in a particular way and and play the certain game and then also you have the public which are likely to try and uh, cut down these elites and so you have to talk in a totally different way and about totally different issues in order to get them on board um, and that it was much easier either in the past when you could just fit into the existing elite or potentially in future when uh, you actually do have this like new understanding of what elite should look like or something. And so it indicates that um, we're at a time of history when you in particular should think that it's difficult to go into politics and you're going to be able to get less done than either in history or in the future. I don't know if I agree with him on that, but it seems to be a corollary of his argument. It's a Alexandria um, Ocasio-Cortez, uh, AOC has been, I'm not sure whether you've been following uh, this one, but yeah, it seems uh, the last month or two, she does seem to have been kind of living out the uh, the um, approach that, that uh, Martin seems enthusiastic about, where she just got elected, like basically just promoting exactly her views, um, like whether you think that they're, they're good policy ideas or not, she's like extremely direct and like certainly not at, not, not at the center of the political spectrum. And also just on a personal, she just seems to be an extremely authentic person all the time. She's like, uh, you know, Snapchatting her like, uh, her, her induction to to the to the congress she's like constantly just tweeting like uh, <laughs> making fun of the people who are criticizing her uh, in the same way that probably i <laughs> i would uh so it does seem like there, there is a potential uh approach to doing that I, I guess she she may have gotten lucky in the in, in the primary fight in that seat uh where the, the it seemed like the incumbent was particularly out of touch and particularly uninterested in uh in appealing to to, to voters there uh but nonetheless she's like doing extremely well uh yeah t- taking taking this approach I feel like we're not quite pinning down what traits it is that we're talking about because we're kind of talking about it as if being an authentic person means uh, tweeting a whole bunch um, and using things like Snapchat when presumably for a lot of uh, existing elites, it's actually just pretty authentic for them to be relatively reserved and spend most of their time, you know, maybe they don't really like tech. Uh, Maybe they are more kind of slowly thoughtful or something rather than putting out a lot of content quickly. And so I'm not really sure if the thing we're talking about is authenticity so much as like, radical openness or something. So what the public's looking for is um, not that they are genuine all the time, but that they're doing, that that they're acting in a way that means that the public has access to their thoughts all the time, something like that. Yeah, so people made the joke that um, 
Hillary Clinton was being extremely authentic. She was an extremely authentic, awkward person who like is not entire, not relatable. She's just being herself and I guess people didn't like it. But yeah, I think maybe it is like relatability more than more than authenticity. I suppose if you're like being inauthentic, then that probably is going to be hard to relate to. Uh, but it is true that yeah, you can be authentic and still like not terribly, not terribly likable and not terribly uh, relatable to, to ordinary people if you're if you just come from a completely different social group. Which actually has real implications. So that's if, if it is relatability that we're really concerned about, it means that someone like a Rob 10 years from now going into politics would have to have a very different strategy than if it is about authenticity. He would have to be more inclined to make compromise, at least on honesty. And I think it's something that we need to keep in mind that that's the thing that we're really talking about, because I think it would be easy to to um, think that what we're talking about is authenticity and then end up with people feeling that they have to massively fake authenticity or something. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I haven't been optimizing my like character and CV in order to get elected. I'd probably like do do very different stuff. If I was, if no, I was but to... the fact that you haven't means that you have this opportunity mm. to be authentic. See. So if you had been optimizing to get elected, that would be, I would say, almost by definition, inauthentic. Yeah, that's interesting. Interesting angle on it. What if you are thinking, well, with the current social group that I'm uh, moving with, I'm going to like DV. I'm just going to become a person who's who's very unrelatable to to voters. So I have to like not hang out with my like other elite friends i have to go and actually hang out with with ordinary people and make sure that my life yeah uh, brings me into touch with the kind of people who i'd be interested in, in having vote for me so that i can can relate to them and speak their language in that case it does maybe it's like inauthentic at the point that you make that decision at the age of yeah, 30 and I mean, then by the time you've like is, changed yeah. your character and you're like 40 or 50 uh, and like are actually kind of more sort of the earth uh, politician it might might seem authentic by that stage yeah i mean so the question would be whether it would seem authentic or whether it would actually be authentic if you did make a genuine change i suppose if we were looking for real authenticity you would then have to say okay so when i was 30 i made this decision to be actively inauthentic by moving to a completely different social group i wanted to get elected uh now that i am elected i can tell you all about it and you would have to then reflect on it honestly yeah, I mean, I think even authentic and likable and relatable people don't say ev- absolutely everything that pops into their no, head. No, 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 and you're under no obligation to. But it's, if you <laughs> that would be one way. If you were presenting yourself as though you were just, you would always mm. been salt of the earth. You would always grown up yeah. around these people. I think that would be a fairly key part of your history. So by admitting that, I would think that it's dishonest. Okay, so Trump and like Sanders they're not like super relatable, I guess, to most voters, right? Their lives have been like very unusual. Um, they don't actually live like the kinds of lives that most people voting for them, presumably. I mean, they're a totally different age, a totally different generation than most of the voters who are yeah. voting for them uh, to begin with. It does seem like perhaps one thing is just like not feeling like people are lying to you all the time uh, is kind of key. Uh, I was like, most politicians are so reserved that it just feels like they're being like, that they're, they're, their response to every question is basically to think like, what's like, the least dishonest thing that I can say that will get me out of this situation. Yeah. Whereas like I mean, Trump and Sanders, you don't get that impression. Well, yeah. I mean, Trump has kind of destroyed all of our ideas about that because he lies more frequently than anyone else. Uh, and yet he comes across as authentic to his base because they sort of have the feeling that, well, he's kind of winking to us. You know, he's lying constantly, but we know he's lying. And therefore that means that it's okay. I think I really like this idea of authenticity as a thing that we're using to decide which politicians to vote for. It seems like what we really care about with politicians is, are they telling the truth? And then something like, um, are they speaking from dispositions that we can expect them to continue with in future? So it doesn't feel like there's really any problem with people uh, 
deliberately setting up their life such that they would be a good politician, right? Because what we actually care about is, will they then act how I would want the politician to act? And I think that's actually what we are or really should be getting at when we seek for our politicians to be truly authentic. Our worry is, well, this person's like pretending to be one of us, but then when he gets the chance to vote on uh, will he raise taxes for my group, he will choose to raise taxes. And so in some ways, it seems like we might be wanting to vote for people like Trump because we think they're authentic in the sense of, I just expect him to have poor impulse control. And so I feel like the fact that he's continuously telling me like what he thinks or something, even if it, you know, I can see through the lies means that I can trust the way that he will vote. And that kind of thing makes me think that the the hypothetical in which someone totally changes who they hang out with at age 30 and things is worrying only insofar as you think, well, maybe I'll then vote them in and then they'll go back to hanging out with the people that I think will give them a, you know, poor ideas or something. As long as you can trust that they genuinely will keep that up, it seems not problematic at all. And then I think the question of whether it's truly authentic is just not the relevant question to ask. Uh, so Martin talked about, in terms of reclaiming the trust of the public, the importance of people in positions of power being willing to say that they were wrong and they were uncertain about positions. And in the effective altruism community, we take moral uncertainty very seriously. But I wonder if perhaps we don't push that message aggressively enough. Do you guys have a sense in which that's true or how we could change that? Yeah. I mean, I guess it's a it's a meme that hasn't seemed to be super viral, um, so I think it would, would require a decent active effort to, to push it, or at least you'd have to find like new ways of framing it. Because <laughs> I guess it's hard to just push the message of "we don't know." Uh, that's mm. like that doesn't tend to inspire people to like take out to this to take <laughs> take to the streets saying, "I'm not sure." We don't know. What yeah, poly- yeah. <laughs> we're not as sure as we think we are. I'm, with a, I'm agnostic about this issue. People with a big sign that just has a question mark. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I suppose another thing is um, we're extremely unsure about what the exact implications are of moral and certainty when, mm. when you follow it through so it's perhaps like a bit a bit too early to be to be popularizing it but i guess it is i mean moral uncertainty empirical uncertainty uh it's like always hard to keep in mind just how like naive or how how, how ignorant we are about um the entirety of all the things going on in the world uh and the human mind is just really not designed to be very agnostic about all kinds of to, to be as agnostic as it should about a very complex like system that's much more complex than the world we were dealing with when when humans evolved so it's probably hard to hard to go overboard uh, em- emphasizing that, uh, at least among people who you want to be like actually taking action or, or who have power to power to power to change the world. Yeah, I guess it feels like also something that's um, pretty relative to context and so hard to get precisely right because you both want to be being clear about the things that you do know that might be surprising, but then you also want to be really clear about where your uncertainty ends, and it's so difficult to know what the beliefs of the person you're engaging with are and so then you don't want to be sounding more uncertain than you are and you don't want to be sounding less uncertain than you are and it makes it a very difficult thing to communicate cogently about. Manguri, so he constantly refers to the elites, did you have a good sense of what that meant? A lot hinges on what we actually mean by this word because initially I thought it was just political elites then of course it becomes clear that he's actually talking about anyone in a position of power within previously dominant institutions so if you're uh, a news anchor that you're you're an elite i mean that doesn't give any uh specificity to thinking that these people are different in any way other than their role right so i was thinking that these you know 
I'm angry at this person simply because they're a news anchor, not because there are any properties about this news anchor that makes them feel not like me, except that they're the one on the news. If people were to get angry with someone, it's purely because of their role and not because of uh, some class of properties. Hmm. I mean, if that's true, it means that we would have to be quite pessimistic on this idea of replacing this elite class. If it was just people within roles, then whoever we replace them with is going to have the same kind of pushback, even if they are very genuine, if they, even if they are very honest. I don't think we necessarily have to be pessimistic about it because I think it would just imply having to change dynamics and maybe how maybe how democracy worked, maybe bringing in more direct democracy, maybe changing ways in which people engaged. And in a way, it's a more optimistic picture where you're not saying you have to change any of the actual individuals, any of the people in these roles are bad, simply that you need to get these two groups getting on better, either by changing the ways in which they interact um, or simply by them getting used to a new dynamic. And then on this, a thing I was thinking was kind of interesting was it seems a bit surprising that he seemed to be saying that uh, the real problem between uh, elites and the public was that each was insufficiently charitable towards the other and so each is thinking that each is like malevolent in some way or something when actually neither of them are and you would expect given that this whole um that he thinks that the whole revolt of the public is caused by increasing information you'd expect that this is a problem that would have gotten better rather than worse over time because if both groups are actually good the more information you get about each group the better it is and i was wondering whether what was really going on here was that it used to be that um elites and the public thought of each other as being just totally different types of things and incomparable or something. And so there was no point getting angry with them. Just like if an outgroup is sufficiently different from you, you don't bother thinking about whether you disagree with them. And if that's the case, it could be that we're just looking for a new equilibrium where people have started to learn that actually they're the same types of people. And that's led to them noticing um, things that they're annoyed about of like, oh, we're the same types of people, but you're like treating us like we're not or something like that. Or maybe you're doing these malevolent things. But then we actually just need to go uh, continue in the same direction of like learning more about each other and things. And then we'll learn like, okay, we're the same types of people. And also uh, that means that we both can get on and, and that um, everyone is can be charitable towards each other. How does that strike you guys? That seems right to me, yeah. I think that seems like a reasonable counterpoint to the thesis, this increase in information not leading to an increase in charitability. Yeah, I thought, it, yeah, that, that, that point uh, really stuck with me, that it was like people in power like tend to look down with contempt at the, at the, at the public who they view as culturally very different from them uh, and, and like vice versa for different reasons. The, I guess the, the people in power like think that the general public are, yeah, really prejudiced and quite stupid. Whereas the, the general public is inclined to view uh, anyone who has power as uh, yeah corrupt and self serving, it does seem like there's obviously some truth to, potentially to, to both of those to both of those views, but it's uh, like probably like, the inclination on both parts I think is to is to ma massively overstate it. Uh, how much is down to like bad intentions versus how much is down to just like sincere error given like the, the challenges of the world, and also to like overstate how useful it is to have that kind of contemptuous attitude. 
that like even if like in a sense someone like deserves contempt because they have like weaknesses as 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 we all do uh it's maybe just best to ignore that and try to try to like love them nonetheless or at least like not 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 to hate them that that would be like a a big step forward in like making making politics and society work better you recently uh you recently wrote an article that gave tips along these lines uh in saying that you ought to ascribe good motives to someone where possible uh, do you think that it's plausible that these kind of norms could spread throughout, let's say, the United States? Well, I feel just like, yeah, the current information environment just really doesn't, is, isn't pushing in that direction. Actually, I suppose, maybe I'll take that, maybe I'll walk that back. I mean, yeah, so it does seem like social media has made things probably worse in this, and that where you spend more time interacting through a medium in which you don't get the normal cues that like uh, arouse like human sympathy that you normally do when you're talking to someone face to face like yeah, even if someone is acting quite badly face to face i think it's it's much harder to get angry with them than, than the equivalent person uh, on on the internet but it does seem like there's such uh so many people have noticed this and like gotten uh dissatisfied with it that i i do wonder whether there'll be like a cultural counter counter reaction to it that that, that can at least maybe temper temper this damage yeah i think as always, I'm more optimistic than you, Rob, um, and think that we're actually doing fairly well at learning more about uh, how humans work and how to improve techniques like cognitive behavioral therapy and that in general the world has been on an upward trajectory and we're going to get better at uh, teaching our kids how to be more charitable and building tools such that they uh, are more conducive to positive human interactions rather than negative ones. And it's pretty explicable that when we first develop things like these social media tools, we wouldn't really know how to deal with them well and we would use them badly, but that um, we'll get much better at that, both in terms of building tools that are good and in terms of learning how to use them in ways that lead to better human interactions. Yeah, I mean, the world's getting better in, in most ways, but uh, I guess I feel like the, the media has mostly gotten worse, like the sharper competition between outlets has led to like a, a degradation in quality. And yeah, the transfer of like discussions on to, yeah, to the internet seems to have mostly made things worse. And I'm not sure like what is the, what is, what is what's the strong enough force to like to reverse that trend? I suppose, uh, yeah, you could hope you get kind of cultural antibodies to like to these negative or like people or, like learning effects. But I do just wonder whether that, that, that is going to be strong enough to like turn, turn back the tide in the other direction. Do we have worse media outlets now? I mean, certainly some seem to have gotten worse and to have gotten um, more um partisan but you also have different types of media outlets springing up um vox's style of uh explaining a whole issue seems markedly better to me than the more traditional newspaper where you're just getting bite-sized chunks every day yeah i mean i think part of this plays into perceptions versus actual reality of the reporting too so as you say vox can have some excellent articles but from people who don't already consider themselves vox subscribers if they already look at them as the other as the enemy immediately uh we're now in a situation where unlike let's say i mean it was maybe a high watermark for american journalism post watergate but people didn't used to look at nbc and say like, oh, that's the other team. It was just basically we had this shared news. Whereas even if Fox is doing a really good job on any particular article, if somebody comes to that with the view that they're not on my team, therefore it doesn't matter, you know, they're probably wrong. Uh, that seems like a, a problem that uh, is going to be very difficult to fix. So even if the institutions were doing really good work, and obviously there's incredible investigative journalism going on, 
they need to have that coupled with this respectability. Yeah, I mean, I guess things seem pretty bad now. Maybe, maybe I haven't lived long enough to like have known on a day-to-day basis how bad things were before. From memory, like the number of journalists in the US has halved, uh, I think, over the last like 10 or 20 years, just because like um, the whole business model has been broken by the internet. And it, like, uh, no, no doubt there are some like really outstanding outlets producing good journalism as, as it kind of always has been. But it seems to me like the, the stories that get the most attention these days are probably worse. Or, like just, yeah. just, there just seems to be like more bullshit stories uh, than kind of ever before. Um, Certainly television news used to be a loss leader for the companies. It used to be, okay, we know we're going to lose money in this, but this is, we're doing a public service here. Whereas now most media institutions, uh, they, you know, they need to generate revenue. So that is done around clicks. And unfortunately, the stories that get the most clicks are not necessarily the best reported ones. I mean, New York Times had, you know, this incredibly in-depth investigation about Trump's taxes a few months ago. Seemed like basically got no traction. (laughs) Like the public just didn't care. You have these like really incredible reporting and these these stories and they just get less of a reaction than something that's maybe just you know 500 words but plays into what you already think about the other side how much do you think this varies between countries because you might expect that in britain with the bbc getting the tv license subscription fee they just are going to be able to afford to continue doing excellent journalism in a way that no network in the u.s will be able to yeah, I mean, uh, public broadcasters can be shielded from this and potentially yeah, provide this this public service. Or yeah, there's like a subsidy for investigative journalism or um, writing stories that people might not be interested in reading, but it's important that they exist. Whereas it's like harder in a yeah, purely market environment to to support that. And like state state media is a bit of a like wild card to to, to throw in there because it can be very good in this way if you like if you set it up correctly that they provide a more like sober analysis and they don't really care whether they, they have a large viewership or not they're just going to try to do a good job and can also obviously just become an arm of the government to like pr- promote their views and like not not be any higher quality than anything else and i think it, that's the case in the in the majority of countries uh the bbc seems to be doing like substantially better than that and so does the australian broadcasting corporation uh they've like managed to set it up such, such that the government doesn't have too much direct control in it and it kind of does provide a public service but uh i mean it, it's it's a very difficult problem to solve so you've got this seems like yeah market media uh, the quality is getting worse because the business model that supported it is, has, has weakened. You could try doing it through non-profits, but there's probably just not enough like people willing to, to donate to support very much of that. There's some of it like ProPublica, uh, and I guess people donate to The Guardian and things like that, uh, which like might change their incentives a bit. And then you've got government. I mean, would you really want like Trump starting up a like, broadcasting corporation in the hope of like providing the public service of informing us all? Um, uh, I mean, maybe, maybe not. So I'm, I'm actually just not really sure what, what is the solution to this. I suppose you could try to get like a lot more people enthusiastic about donating to like really high quality journalism. And maybe that's the best we can do. But, you know, I, I don't imagine that's going to bring in billions and billions of dollars of revenue. I was going to ask, do you think that it's plausibly important enough that those of us in the effective altruism community should be thinking about this as a potential cause area to actually be generating more donations towards independent media outlets? Or do you think that this is something that is either not going to generate enough interest or just wouldn't be able to track well enough against our other primary causes? Yeah, I uh, I think someone who's in a good position to, to take this on, it's like is is uh, a really important problem in society and like reasonably neglected. There's not that many people trying to come up with with new models for for funding high quality information uh, like discovery and, and provision. I suppose I just haven't been able to think of like a good solution here. So I've been a bit pessimistic about the tractability of it. It seems like the trends are negative. There's like lots of ways that things are getting worse. And I'm just not sure like what approach I would take if I was like 
gonna gonna try gonna try to fix it. But it seems like the problem has like become more more severe, and so I, I hope that we'll be able to do do more interviews uh, about about this in future. Like trying to like see whether whether anyone actually has any good ideas for like how you can change this on a, on any significant scale. I think I have a good sense of how many journalists and how uh, much media I think would be the best. Because on the one hand, I mean, halving the number of journalists sounds kind of bad, but I have the general sense that most media is just not very high quality and not that good. And so uh, actually you would be fine with substantially less as long as it was good. But then I don't know how much you actually need really good competition in order to get good journalism and the extent to which you have to have more jobs in order that you attract some of the best people and things. My general feeling is that journalism is very competitive and so you are attracting really good people and that it would just be fine to have um, a bit less as long as it was high quality. Yeah, I think I think we need, need less competition. It's like the competition that's like making things worse because it just turns like... In the past, there was so much slack in the system. There was uh, not that many channels, not that many newspapers that people had like could could possibly subscribe to in any given city, such that it was viable for them to have a lot of uh, that they could take some of the extra profits that they were earning essentially from this oligopoly and like spend some of it on investigative journalism or doing what they thought was the right thing. Now that the, now that uh, the margins are so fine, they don't have any discretion to do what they think is right potentially because if they do that, they just get cut out of the conversation and go bankrupt, which is. It's it's an unusual business where you say, well, in fact, like less competition might make things better. I mean, part of part of the issue is that uh, the media, I think, now is providing what we want, but it turns out that what we want is like entertainment and like hating on our hating on our enemies more than like reading some story, some like really in depth story about like Trump's taxes. Uh, that's just a lot of work and not very rewarding, I think, to most readers. Even though they would like for that story to like exist, they'd be willing to pay if their contribution like made the difference between that story existing and not. Then they might be willing to pay for. Uh, that someone to go and do, go and do that work in order to make the country better, uh, but there's this like really strong temptation to, to freeload on and and to not contribute to paying for the kind of people who would work and, and do that difficult uh, difficult research. How much of this do you think can be replaced by books? Because you might think that it's now easier than ever before to write and uh, publish a book. And you might think that most of the things that you really want investigative journalism done on actually you'd like done in a lot of depth. And so that might be able to improve this problem a bit. Yeah, that, that seems uh, like, a, like a good point. I suppose if you consider like um, all different access, uh, information that people have access to, I guess it's not clear that the, the environment as a whole has gotten worse because people access to like academic journals more easily than they used to. Like, yeah, there's like more more books being published. Though I guess I'm not sure what the what the typical quality is. We have, we have access to Wikipedia, for example. It just seems like the the things that kind of day to day journalism focuses on has, seem to seem to be the things that that have gotten that have gotten worse. So I guess I, I'm not sure whether the public as a whole is like more misinformed, like all things considered, across all issues. But when it comes to like politics and the kind of like yeah day-to-day fights that you read about in yeah Vox or Fox News that that's that seems to be degrading worse I mean if we don't think that the public is less well informed than it previously was then it seems a bit surprising to think that it's an important cause for effective altruists to work on to increase the extent to which the public's informed, even if they're now getting most of their information from different sources like Wikipedia and books, unless you think that uh, the fact that specifically mass media is degrading means that we have this huge opportunity to make the public way better informed than it used to be and we need to be taking that. 
Yeah, so I guess I just think of them as different problems. Like, so people who are interested in reading books and like reading encyclopedias and learning about history or learning about chemistry or something, uh, in a sense, we, we've never had it better. But I think there's like a subset of kind of the information environment, which is like political fights, where uh, the, the the typical quality of things that people are reading on that issue is worse. I'm not sure I agree that these things are really in different categories because when I want to learn about some particular political fight, I will very often go to Wikipedia because what I actually want is a summary of what's been happening over the last month and a half or something. Yeah, so do I, but I think that's very unusual. I th- like Wikipedia doesn't push its articles in the same way into like come up with snappy titles and snappy like hooks to try to get people to read it and like, you know, click through from, from their newsfeed. Um, that's like something that you do if you're like, really interested in the topic on like some on, on some policy level but i think that that's like a, a vanishingly small fraction of like yeah total readership i think i feel a bit uncomfortable about the um framing that we're using to learn uh how we might want to a- apply this for improving the world where it feels a bit like we're using this to think through okay how does this mean we should be trying to change other people's actions or something whereas I think it could be that actually the thing that we should be most using this in is thinking about how this might bias our own actions so one thing that stood out to me was that these the public protest movements that he was talking about often were basically just negation. They often weren't aiming at anything in particular. And that felt like it was getting at some kind of uh, general psychological trend in humans where we tend to feel, uh, well, this is wrong and I should do something about that. Um, And then it's actually much harder to take this final step of being constructive and working out what thing to do about it. And often by that point, you know, you feel like you've put in a ton of effort, you went to the protest and you, you know, you did your part. Um, And you can see that in, in things like the protest after the Brexit uh, vote or something where people who maybe didn't actually go out um, knocking on doors, getting people to vote remain, then all went to London to protest about. Um, And I think one thing that we should really be learning as effective altruists from uh, this like synthesis of here are all of these movements is that it's going to be super easy for us to generally criticize things and to point out all of the ways in which things are failing and point out these charities being less effective than they could be and people should be thinking differently and people should be instead of being super constructive and thinking about okay but how do we create the institutions that will be positive in future that seems right to me yeah Uh, i'm not sure if we got into as much as we wanted to but yeah the idea that we could as a community be susceptible to this idea of negation seem to be really important that we i mean probably i mean it's a very young movement but it seems plausible that if we existed in 30 years you could get more and more towards this idea of trying to be as you say overly critical as opposed to creating these yeah worthwhile policy alternatives which i think we do at the moment which rob pointed out in the interview but yeah, I I wanted to know what Martin thought about how we protect against that impulse, if it is a universal human impulse. Yeah, I think it it feels to me like uh, that did ring true as a as a human impulse, partly because it, there's the obvious saliency of well, if someone brings a thing to me, then I can think of what uh, what might be wrong with it. 
but then it's a whole extra step to work out what I should do next. And I don't know how self-congratulatory we should be about this in thinking that effective altruists are good at um, avoiding this negation problem. Sure, it seems like we try harder at it maybe than than some other groups, but actually it does feel like um, the emphasis on effectiveness can easily uh, blur into an excessive emphasis on the negative and on what other people are doing wrong, um, rather than on what things we can notice are going well in the world and what we should increase in the world, that kind of thing. Yeah, I guess we've tried uh, from like back in 2011, 2012 to like discourage people from just shitting on the efforts of, of others. Obviously, it's like a pretty pretty strong temptation at times. It can be it can be fun. Some more than others. <laughs> no, no doubt. I guess yeah, maybe at eighty thousand hours because we uh, we rarely put up discussions of problems when we have like no sense of the tractability or no sense of what can be done. Um, there is this push to be to be at least somewhat constructive, uh, even if I guess a lot of the time we are just criticizing things that don't work or talking about problems that we think are, are overemphasized. But hopefully, hopefully we can keep that in and expand that even more. Uh, so we don't, yeah, we don't just fall into this trap of criticizing things that don't work without like actually having a better alternative. So I guess uh, people might look at the current like pecu- peculiar nature of politics in the US and uh, to a lesser extent the UK and uh, hope that things are going to go back to normal in the next next election. I kind of still still hope uh, hope that that might be the case that uh, this would just have been an unusual uh, four to six years and then maybe we'll just like elect someone boring next and. Uh, policy discussions will return to how they used to be. But I suppose if uh, if Guri's thesis is correct, then uh, that's probably not going to happen. Uh, we'll probably, yeah, think things will like remain peculiar for, for some time. Although I guess, yeah, people's like behavior and reactions to this new circumstance might change. So it's like, doesn't necessarily have to be the same kind of weirdness that we have now. So yeah, what, what, what do you think? Should we be like optimistic or pessimistic about where this is going to go in the next 10 or 20 years? Uh, I'm genu- genuinely uncertain. I just yeah. think that uh, I don't think the Guru has persuaded me enough to the point where I'm now going to say like, oh, okay, well, I'm willing to make a strong prediction one way or another. Yeah, I'm not sure I'm even totally persuaded that um, politics is wackier now than it has been if you look over the, you know, a broader time horizon than just like eight years ago or something. Do you feel that you, you are pretty sure of that? It does feel like it's a bit worse than average, but I suppose it's not clear whether it's worse than like Nixon or I'm trying to think. Uh, yeah, it's like there was a uh, lot of like racism like throughout U.S. history. If you like look at what the kind of policies that were getting proposed in the in the '90s by very mainstream politicians, they're like perhaps not as like different uh, than, than what we see today from people who we consider quite radical. So it could be that it's like this is just made more visible something that like has always been the case, and in fact we're like overestimating how much things have actually changed. And I suppose just uh, it could be that just the the very crowded like Republican primary um, is one is like an unusual like voting system that allowed like a set of views that were always like common but nonetheless a minority to achieve like a much higher level of prominence. Do you have a sense of whether um, if a candidate has a particularly strong policy, um, for example, trying to implement massive tax cuts, whether that's likely to uh, make the tax cuts that are implemented, in fact, greater or lesser? Because I can both imagine that if they ask for something very unreasonable, then they end up getting totally blocked and no tax cuts go through. Or I can imagine it going the way where people were thinking that they, you know, accept some smallish tax cut, and then the person's just giving such a huge... uh, initial bid that they end up being willing to accept much more than they would have otherwise it would be kind of surprising i guess if like electing someone who had a very strong view in one direction uh like 
set it backwards, all things considered, or like in expectation. I suppose if they're like extremely unstrategic uh, politically, then I guess it, I guess it could end up like yeah, producing a kind of reverse effect. I mean, you do see that with like a lot of the things that there's there's a lot of uh, things that Trump supports, like the wall and like uh, reducing immigration and reducing trade, uh, that have actually become less popular while he's been president because he's uh, he's radicalized Democrats to like oppose this. So like. Uh, yeah, reducing trade has become more popular among Republicans, but Democrats have even, to a greater degree, like consolidated in favor of trade, and because they because they dislike Trump so much. So then, yeah, there are like a whole lot of forces that like push against someone having control. I guess also incumbents uh, often become less popular because once they actually have to put forward like policies, people become dissatisfied. So and and this is like very fitting with Martin's theory that it's like potentially easy to gain power by like complaining about the system, but then hard to hold on to it because like then people hate you because you're you're the status quo. That's like potentially like somewhat good, I suppose, because it means it's hard for it's it's harder for like politics to go off in like one extreme direction uh, and to get, kind of get snowball effects where like you gain power and then you gain even more power and, and so on. Uh, it seems to be that uh, it, it's hard for anyone to pursue uh, an agenda for any significant period of time. Uh, uh, off, yeah, often like any particularly large large direction. Although I suppose if you think the status quo is very bad, that that also isn't too appealing because it means that we're kind of stuck here uh, with like only small modifications. I'm going to like swing swing back and forth and never really have like a concerted effort to to shift things uh, away from where we are. Yeah, it also uh, creates limitations on us being able to put forward policies that have the even medium long term future in mind. Uh, so if if a candidate comes forward talking about even the next fifty years they're not getting any traction, uh, then they'll just naturally just keep dropping down and down until it's just the next four years, maybe the next eight years. Uh, and yeah, I'm not sure if I, I know a way out of that, but that seems pretty important for us to try and get a change there. Yeah, it does. I guess you might think that we should in fact be really happy about this uh, dynamic from the kinds of reasons that, that Martin said it near the end of the podcast about um, authoritarianism now seeming entirely unviable because it does seem like this dynamic of swimming back and forth is happening more and should mean that totalitarianism is just much less likely compared to looking at the number of terms that FDR say had. And that could be a massive relief because it does seem like one of the few things that could really destroy the value of the full far future is some totalitarian government that gets properly locked in. And if we can't even get near that Mm. because of these new dynamics, that could be something that makes the world much better. Yeah, I wasn't entirely convinced by his answer there. I suppose probably it is true that if in as much as the general public has access to lots of information and can oppose authority uh, and challenge it, maybe it is harder to create a stable uh, dictatorship. Uh, on the other hand, in as much as people are just like completely dissatisfied with with how things are running uh, and like have no trust in institutions, then I think it makes them more open to like radical shifts, like having a military coup, and then and so the military like runs a coup, and then people like kind of shrug their shoulders and like, well, everything was terrible anyway. And and I think you see this in like in in, in many countries, like perhaps in South America and in and in some European countries in the past, that in as much as people just kind of despair of like politic of democratic politics functioning at all, then they're then they're more open to like alternative arrangements because. Uh, they just don't actually see it as being like materially worse i think you're right yeah i think it, it potentially makes people more likely to allow for a military coup and then we have to hope that the access to extra information makes it more likely they'll be able to get rid of them but that may not be the case if someone's actually running things correctly if you have a north korea who is actually you know giving you a blueprint for what you could do if you have total control well it's possible that a military could get themselves into that situation in any particular country 
uh, particularly if the public are just, at least in the first stages, in the first couple of years of a government, just less interested. Uh, if this sort of leads to kind of burnout, if ever if everything is just like, well, this is just we're constantly dissatisfied rather than having a, a change between we really liked this person, we didn't like this person. If they're always being against, they always have this spirit of negation, uh, maybe that could make things uh, more troubling. I mean, the spirit of negation doesn't say anything about whether you couldn't have uh, degrees of how much against things you are. Um, and it seems that the kinds of things he's talking about are increased engagement rather than disengagement, which to me would make it less likely that you could have a military coup because it's just more clear that you have um, a lot of people willing to engage and willing to engage in, in a uh, vocal way that maybe you didn't at all in the past. Yeah, I, I think there's a lot of barriers to like a military coup in the, in the in the US today. I suppose what if you did just have the kinds of people who are taking to to the streets and complaining about the system as it is today ju- did just like eventually despair of like of democratic politics ever like bringing around the changes that they wanted because they've seen things go back and forth so many times and like in, in their view nothing has gotten better. Uh, would they then be like, well, we're not going to take to the streets when the military takes over uh, because who cares? Like, well, we're just we voted to Trump to like try to smash the system and make it different and get rid of these like uh, these people we, we we don't like and who look down on us and then wow this is just another shot at doing that sure a very risky one but like we were we were willing to take risks anyway because we were so so dissatisfied with the status quo uh, I mean I think the reason it won't happen well, there's a lot of reasons that I think that's unlikely to happen anytime soon in particular I don't think uh, the military would go along with it I think they have too much of an ethos that's like in favor of following the constitution. But you could see that that being worn away over over decades. Yeah, my feeling is that you guys' point is that um, the strong engagement that we're seeing now where people are willing to protest is going to lead to burnout. I don't actually see any evidence that it's going to lead to burnout. Um, the, the only evidence we have right now is increased engagement. And if we can see increased engagement now, then there's no reason to think that that will lead to future disengagement which could lead to military coup or something yeah i suppose it was just that uh an increased engagement might lead to a military coup just by virtue of not seeing them as being you know too different from another political option so they might actually go along supporting a military coup in a way of engagement and then might realize a few months in you know whoops yeah, I guess I guess uh, Martin's point might be that uh, yeah, you get the military takeover and people are like, oh, well, this is interesting. But then a month later, they hate it, and then they're all taken mm. to the streets again. It's and it's so easy to coordinate against it that it, yeah. that it wouldn't last very long. Mm-hmm. Just seems like there there might be a lot of truth to that, especially because it's like the thing that ultimately sustains a military dictatorship is that the soldiers are willing to shoot on the public uh, in order to uh, like protect it, in as much as the public protests and tries to overthrow them. Uh, and it does just seem. Uh, unlikely to me that would have a military coup here anytime soon and then like when people take to the streets the the like typical members of the military are just going to start shooting on the american public maybe i'm naive but that but that does seem like a bit of a stretch like uh, within the next 10 or 20 years yeah i mean it actually speaks to uh realizing that we're actually not in, in america at least not in the worst phase of even recent history uh if you look back at uh, the early 70s and you had situations where you actually did have uh, police firing on students uh, and some really severe riots and actually people fighting in the streets things that people are concerned about today but tend to not happen 
you have groups that confront each other and there's a little bit of violence, but you really had that a few decades ago. Uh, and I think it's, yeah, it's, it's interesting to consider how much of our disagreements and animosity is just happening online, whether you actually, it would extend to this, you know, apocalyptic civil war that people sometimes talk about. Yeah, I am pretty interested in this question of whether there actually is more um, protesting now. Because as you say, you had in the 60s and 70s in the US, women's movement and youth movement. And it might be partly that it feels that we feel it more probably because you can see it much more because we have so much more media now. But it might also feel more salient because it's less clear what their demands are. And so it feels a lot less like, oh, well, you know, those are the people that are protesting against the Vietnam War. So like, we don't have to think about that except insofar as we're thinking about the Vietnam War. Whereas uh, things like Occupy Wall Street, it's a, a lot less clear and it's a lot more protesting against everything. And I think it'd be pretty interesting to know to what extent we should just expect people in general to always have some underlying feeling of the world should be better and always to want to protest something even if they're not clear what they're protesting martin made this point about uh he was part of the vietnam war protests and he was there and he was with you know uh, his then girlfriend now wife pointed out that there was a million nonconformists who were all wearing blue jeans and that that's what defined their generation for them. It was the protests. It wasn't the people who stayed at home and just silently supported the war, even though most young people seem to. Uh, do we have a sense of who's going to be viewed as sort of the, the key cultural figures of this era? I mean, do we think that in 30 years people will look back and say that there are, there are these people who defined our generation? Or is it are there so many different movements that it just isn't possible today? Well, I think it's the 80,000 Hours podcast that's going to be at the vanguard of everything, Karen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've got, I've, got, I've got no idea. I wouldn't want to be making predictions about that. Things seem, things seem pretty chaotic culturally in this, yeah, and, and politically. It's like hard to tell who's going to be popular two years from now, let alone in decades from now. Uh, final thoughts. Did you, did you enjoy the podcast, Michelle? I very much enjoyed the podcast, yeah. I thought that it was a, a really good discussion of the topic. Excellent answer, just as we rehearsed, Michelle. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's let's leave that there. Thanks, thanks for thanks for joining this uh, this 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 impromptu discussion, Kieran and Michelle. Thanks, Rob. Thanks, Rob. I hope you enjoyed the two conversations above. If you did, you should definitely subscribe so you'll get reminded about Glenn Wiles' episode, which should go out in the next couple of weeks. The Eighty Thousand Hours podcast is produced by Kieran Harris. Thanks for joining. Talk to you in a week or two.